two, one, blast off. We are live for Atwood Unleashed 57. And we've got some of the same subjects trending, but we've also got two of your most requested guests ever in the history of the channel. One has been requested for many, many years, and he's been on the channel multiple times, and that is Ryan Dawson. And the other, a fellow Atwood, he has just risen up as a YouTube superstar combating the NWO. And I was on his channel a couple of weeks ago. Loads of people were saying, get him on your channel, get him on your channel. So we're going to have him on the Patreon section. Also, we are going to be talking a bit about Assange, Elon Musk and Twitter, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, as well as all of the brilliant guests we've got lined up, which we're about to get into. Before we get into the guests, have you had a good week, Andrew? had a pretty good week because I've talked to you quite a bit. I've been getting more and more sort of WhatsApp messages from you in the week. It's been quite nice. Because you're about to abandon us for the faraway lands, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Can never tell with Sean if he's forgotten where I'm going on holiday, which is Cornwall. Cornwall, or, or if he's yeah, or if he's searching for a better. Uh, I wasn't sure whether you wanted lands. me. I wasn't sure whether you wanted me to announce the actual location uh, in case you get mobbed. I think it's <laughs> as, as often happens. It's, I think it's a large enough place that they won't have me pinned down uh, exactly. But yeah, no, it's been a lovely week. I've been working on my podcast on the edge with Andrew Gold, which uh, you were of course on, Sean. Do you remember that? Do you, or is it just too much stuff going on? It's a, it's a blur. It's like a traumatic memory that I've tried to erode from my consciousness. I, I did get therapy immediately afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny to to go back? Because that was now like eight months ago, and it's before we knew each other. So we're just I'm interviewing you, and I came on here as well, and you interviewed me. And it'd be funny to go back and sort of see how we interacted. With, you don't often get that with a friendship. You don't get to go back to the very beginning and see how we were probably both a bit sort of not as warm and a bit not knowing what to say to each other. See how gingerly we approached each other versus how sexy and giggly we are now. Yeah, although we did talk about back hair from the office. <laughs> that was it. Love at first sight. <laughs> so tonight's four-hour show is going to have a total of eight guests, or maybe seven because we do have a slot Ash is still trying to fill. The first two hours, well, two and a quarter these days because our new intro time is at 5.45, first two and a quarter hours is going to be on YouTube and then hours three and four are on Patreon. If you click in the description box below this video, you can see the link to the Patreon. You can also see the link to my merch. Yes, merch is very commercial, a bit against it, but since we got slammed with our ad revenue, since the all of the uh, certain content was banned from the channel, we're having to explore other revenue avenues. Merch link is down there. There's two pages of T-shirts teacups and even some wild man stuff we've also got in the description box is the link to ryan d's twitter account he's back on twitter he's got one half thousand followers he's only been up for a few days so if you love ryan d as much as us please go and support Ryan d on twitter all right and then of course patreon is enabling us also to create shows like this and if you want to watch the savile documentary ahead of its broadcast on youtube then it is available on the Patreon wall right now. You can watch it before it's release. Okay, so the first guest is Mark Folman at six o'clock. What's the deal with Mark, Andrew? 
Mark is all about the gun stuff. So I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to divide a lot of people, particularly on the YouTube channel. Um, he's a long-time national affairs editor for Mother Jones, which is quite a progressive outlet. Um, since 2012, has been creating a first-of-its-kind public database of mass shootings, and he's won lots of awards. Um, he talks about gun violence. Uh, his book is called Trigger Points, uh, and it's about the specialist teams of forensic psychologists, FBI agents, and other experts who are successfully stopping mass shootings. So that's going to, I know, get a lot of debate. Uh, I think Sean often reminds people, hey, we're, we're not the people, you know, we just interview people with different views. We've had a lot of people on here who have been very pro uh, use of gun in, in the, guns in the States, and this person, I believe, is quite anti it. And we'll hear what, what he has to say. Don't, what do you think, Sean? Yeah, fascinating. I, again, I'm an observer of this whole thing. I understand that under the uh, Constitution, you know, guns, were, there was a right to guns to prevent tyrannical oppressors overthrowing the, the, the public. Completely understand that side of the argument. Understand how the proliferation of guns, you know, the, the, the fatalities, the, the school shootings, all that kind of stuff in America. Uh, and I also understand that during the podcast wars, I wish I had something under my pillow. But um, yeah. Anyway, next guest. Next guest <laughs> is Ryan D. He's going to be stopping by to give his thoughts on a lot of the latest stories going viral on the internet, including Julian Assange, Elon Musk, and Twitter, and his thoughts on Depp versus Heard and free speech. So that will be coming along at 6.30 to 7.30. And then we're going to be, uh, Emily D. Baker is going to be coming on the show for the first time with Andrew. Yeah, yeah, she's cool. Um, I've spoken to her before, actually. Lovely person, top lawyer. Uh, she's been an attorney for over 15 years, and her YouTube channel provides legal analysis that helps her viewers understand the law with humour. She got sort of famous for talking about the whole Britney Spears conservatorship, and, you know, when her dad was like, in charge of her life. That was really interesting. Tonight we'll be talking Depp versus Heard. So, and we, I don't know, I might want to ask her a little bit about the uh, Woe versus Red... Was it Ray? Oh, I got it. Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade. Wow. Yeah. Into yep. that one. And then da, 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 <clears throat> Patreon commencing at eight ten. First up is Mark Aswood, and if you've not seen his channel on YouTube, it's phenomenal. He's getting some real good guests on at the front line of the activism against the NWO. Trying to phrase this very carefully. There's a reason we got him on Patreon. <laughs> and um, yeah, I was at a yoga class today and a woman came up to me and said she discovered my, she discovered my channel through Mark Atwood's channel. And then she went on to say she'd been watching my content with Mr. Andrew Gold and how much she had enjoyed it, seeing Mr. Andrew right. Gold. <laughs> she must be talking about the other Andrew Gold, the singer, he died, unfortunately. Do you know about him, Sean? Have you ever heard his music? No, but I imagine it's quite a common name, Andrew Gold. No, oh, I don't. Don't call me common, mate. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, well, it's a Jewish name, and it was Goldstein. My dad changed it to stop all the sort of uh, anti-Semitic stuff. But then a lot of other people changed it, so it didn't work. It's now again, it's a Jewish name, but not as Jewish sounding as Goldstein. But there was a singer called Andrew Gold. I spoke to his wife recently because he died ten years ago. He was big. He played with the Beatles, huge in America. Sung a song called "Lonely Boy." So uh, I'd, I'd recommend his music. Very sad that he passed away. I'm inspired by that. I might change my name now to Sean at. 
yeah get rid of the wood uh, so that because everyone, would think, everyone would think everyone would think you're telling them your email address all those people lobbying for deforestation um it's, it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> sean at gmail.com <laughs> All right, yeah, so 8.40 to 9.10 is an unfilled slot that Ash is working on, but hopefully he won't oh. fill it and we can keep Mark Atwood going for another 30 minutes because he is such a jolly gentleman to enjoy. Yeah. Then, Michael yeah. Tracy. Yeah. You've got Michael Tracy. Oh, mate, the, the stuff I could tell you about Michael Tracy. Michael Tracy at 20 to 10, he's the last guest of the night. He's an American independent journalist currently covering the Ukraine-Russia conflict, which you can keep up to speed with via his substack. Uh, Michael's been published in the likes of The Independent, Al Jazeera, The Daily Beast, and The New Republic. So yeah, just a bit more finding out some stuff, aren't we, tonight about Ukraine-Russia? Yeah, and I had lunch with a guy this week who has just come back, and he's telling me that everything we are seeing in the news is completely upside down. But I can't elaborate on this platform because they have just tightened the guidelines around this particular subject so we've got about seven minutes before we bring in the first guest and we're going to discuss some of the prominent news stories i know there's an obsession right now with herd versus depp mm -hmm. and one of the big stories there is that herd fired her pr team after becoming frustrated by bad headlines and she's also set to testify in the defamation trial this week so i know a lot of people are rebroadcasting the trial and running live commentaries on this we're looking into the legality of that right now please let me know in the chat if you would like to see on this channel a rebroadcasting of the live stream of amber heard's testimony with me commenting would you like to see that put a one if you would not like to see that if you're sick of this put a two and wherever you are we got we've got all your ones and twos coming in across youtube facebook twitter wherever you whatever platform you're watching this we, we see everything in front of us on our restream software yes got a few ones coming in nikki nikki's on the one though yeah lovely nikki 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 watches my show it's lovely there's a, there's a two from paul a lot, lot more, ooh, a lot of ones, a lot of ones. Nosferatu, typical, let's put zero. One, two, one, two, two, two. I think it, look, it looks about two thirds ones to twos to me. What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, but do you even remember what you said, Sean? One, yes, one yeah. constitutes, we're gonna uh, live stream some of Amber Heard's testimony and do a running commentary on it. I think it's time, mate. Might step up to some of that. We're going to be just looking into legalities of it. It seems like a lot of other people are doing it. All right, so um, just days before she's scheduled to give testimony, she fired her PR team and hired a new firm. She was using precision strategies, but has now switched to the services of LA-based Shane Communications. She was becoming frustrated with coverage of the defamation case, an unnamed source told the New York Post. What do you think about that? Do you think she's seen that it's going against her in the public domain and she's now at the last minute mm. decided to reconfigure her PR apparatus? Quite possibly. I don't think the PR team are necessarily responsible for who they put on the stand. And most of what we're getting is quite unfiltered from the stand, isn't it? If anything, firing her PR team is a PR move 
in itself. It's a little bit like a bad football team firing the manager. You know, it's just a sort of, it's like, oh, it wasn't the football team's fault, it was the manager's fault. But then the new manager comes in and it's still no better because the players aren't good enough. Um, and, and that seems to be what's going on here. I mean, yet again, uh, her, so, so her personal nurse, now I don't know why she's got personal nurse in the first place. I don't have any personal nurses or, or, or unpersonal nurses. But uh, she's testified that, you know, she was uh, addicted to the white stuff, uh, addicted to the well, liquor as well. Uh, emotional liability, deeply jealous of Johnny Depp's fame. I mean, every professional who speaks out about her, and, and by the way, it seems mad that these professionals are even allowed to do it. I don't know about the, 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 the oath that they take, you know, but it's mad. And I'm not surprised she's had to fire up, do, do something, fire a PR team, because I'm someone, as you know, I don't, I don't like to take a... I'm always like, well, let's see the other... But it has been pretty much all negative so far. What do you think, Sean? No, I agree with you. She's addressing not the root cause. She's just cutting off a symptom, and the root mm. cause will dominate. But we've got two minutes left, then. I'm just going to go over to Twitter now. So Twitter's yeah. new owner, Elon Musk, is lining up a new chief executive to replace CEO Para. Agrawal, after the 44 billion sale, uh, according to Reuters, and they're talking about uh, him firing all kinds of people at, at Twitter. What do you think? Do you think there should be a shake up with the Twitter stuff? Difficult one to know. Don't know what's going on. And again, this is me being, I, I don't want to say the boring thing, right? But the boring thing here is that we need to protect free speech at all costs. However, there are situations where violence is, is sort of, you know, uh, suggested and and created from words. Where do you draw the line? Every there's seventy billion. What is there? Seven billion, eight billion people in the world. Seventy million in the UK, all wanting different things. Everybody has a different idea of what free speech should be. What do we do with it, Sean? What do we do with it? I think Twitter, the Twitter staff are an absolute abomination for free speech. They have created <laughs> a minefield at us content creators. Now we are nervously treading eggshells every time we post something. And considering that they came out advertising themselves as this free speech platform, it has completely gone topsy-turvy. These idiots have never created any shareholder value, and it makes me suspect that there's a far bigger agenda that Twitter has been accommodating versus doing the right thing for the public and its shareholders. So Your, your, I, your view I, was more interesting than mine. I'm welcoming Musk to shake the hell out of these people and, and, and get rid of mm. these um, moaning ninnies censoring yeah. the likes of us. Do you think it's good if we have, you've got your entertaining and wild, yours is more, you're more, you know, and I'm a bit more on the fence. I'm, you know, is that, is that nice? Do people like that? Are people enjoying hearing that? Maybe they are. The contrasting opinions of our intergenerational experiences. <laughs> yeah, I forget. I always forget your outrageous age that you have and how you manage to hide it. Right. Are you ready for this? One of the most requested guests on the planet that we've ever had on the channel. He's now re-emerged on Twitter. Please go over and send him a tweet. Follow him on Twitter. He had 1,500 followers when I checked yesterday. And you can also link over to his website and everything else that he's doing so ryan how's it going man yeah like you said i am i'm back from the grave on uh twitter it's been a few years i had uh, i've you know i've made accounts they just get banned within six or seven days every time we'll see how long this lasts with elon in the chair he's not fully in the chair yet 
But, uh, you know, a lot of people are coming back to Twitter in the hopes that there might be free speech. And you're also seeing the typical crowd uh, losing its mind. How could you allow free speech, which is supposed to be an inalienable right in the U.S. anyway? Of course, it hasn't been for a long time, though. So, yeah, I thanks for uh, retweeting and saying I'm, I'm over there. People all said, is this the re really you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got so many questions about Twitter then. It's it's so topical as well. So, you know, if you go back to Twitter's inception, they marketed themselves as a free speech hub. Yeah. And now we've got all this fascist fact-checking, etc. Do you think when Elon goes in, if he does go in, first of all, do you think, you know, it, it will succeed this takeover? And secondly, if he does, will he get access to how people are shadow banned and the algorithm and all the heinous stuff that's been hidden, the smoke mm -hmm. and mirrors to get people like me and you walking on eggshells. Will Elon be able to access that? Or do you think these swines are deleting it all as we speak? I don't think they're gonna be able, There, there is definitely the equivalent of a digital paper shredding going on right now. And so he's not going to get access to all of it, but I don't think they're going to be able to race all of it either. He's locked some of them out, but you're seeing one thing that happened immediately where a lot of conservatives, let's say just normie conservatives from like Fox news or something suddenly in a day, tens of thousands of new followers, just like that. They were suppressing the numbers. That's obvious. And it's just been going up and up. Um, and then a few accounts that were permabanned got returned, like Tucker Carlson was returned. He's the most popular um, talking head is what I call him <laughs> over at Fox. He got his back. The My Pillow guy got his back and then got banned again already. Uh, a comedian, Sam Hyde, got his back and then got banned again already. Um, who else? Uh, they unbanned Babylon B, a satire site. That was pretty good. But you're seeing some of them are still getting banned because uh, the San Frans, as we call San Francisco people, are still in the chair. All the moderators, everybody, he hasn't uh, hired and fired yet. He, it's impossible. And when you buy a company of that size, it's not like, okay, this is now mine and it's over. Oh, or as you said, like, is he, is it going to complete it or not? So, I mean, he asked me to. He has purchased Twitter, but they could still say no. But if they're going to have to pay him a billion dollars if they back out of this agreement. But he's going to have to, in my opinion, step one is get out of San Francisco, just like he did Tesla. Leave California and go to a real state. <laughs> they say real state. Any of the other, any of the other states would be better than California. Uh, maybe he could move to Texas like he did Tesla. Bring all those jobs and get out of that cesspool. Get out from under the air of Pelosi and those witches, you know. But you are seeing it already. Another thing that happened already is BitChute, the alternative to YouTube, one of the one of the first alternatives to YouTube, which actually has the most eyeballs, but doesn't have all the features that Odyssey has or anything. But they used to, anytime you link to a BitChute video about anything, it could be kittens playing with string, whatever. If it was bitshoot.com slash anything at all twitter put a warning label under it and said you know this could call it could be malware and just tried to scare you away from going there now the 
what happened on the 25th was you could link to BitChute and the video would just play because he locked all the moderators down. He said, you're not going to sabotage us. What happened on the 26th was the warning was back. <laughs> but the thumbnail still shows up. So that's a small edge. But they wouldn't let you link to BitChute. And BitChute, as you know, had a lot of videos about the things that I'm not allowed to mention on YouTube. But certain things that, that definitely would have had impact on the 2020 election. And they're so damning and truthful that I can't even tell you what they are. Uh, let's say um, I don't even want to. I don't even want to like play word games with it. But you know, <clears throat> certain laptops and stuff. That yeah, gotta stay, gotta stay away yeah. from all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And other things, other yeah. things, diaries and whatever. But all, all truthful and reported by the New York Post and and other things. And they got banned on Twitter too. And that's the oldest paper, I believe the oldest paper that's still in circulation is the New York Post. It's Alexander Hamilton's old paper. And they banned newspapers, Lincoln style, just shut down whatever we disagree with. And that's what Twitter was doing. And so it's not just the shadow banning the thing. You're talking criminal activity when you're talking about interference in a which you're not allowed to do, uh, that Twitter was involved in. And that might be why Jack Dorsey left early and say, here, you deal with this problem because <laughs> they were getting pulled before Congress and talking to Ted Cruz and a little bit of pushback from some Republicans <laughs> way too late. But uh, all of these social media companies are engaged in this kind of behavior. It's just Twitter has the spotlight and it's really the smallest of the big giants, right? It's the small giant. It's not as big as Facebook and or what do you call it? Meta, whatever. Uh, Instagram, that whole auspice is not as big as Google, YouTube. It's the smaller one, but it is definitely the it used to be the arena where you could get a little bit of back and forth. But uh, yeah, I was one of the first people <laughs> banned from it. <laughs> and, uh, you know. The people that owned it, the prior owners, the largest stockholders were BlackRock and Vanguard. The same as PayPal. On PayPal, it's Vanguard and BlackRock. I mean, just the same top two. And they have a vested interest in particular narratives, especially the flu that's going around, if you know what I mean, because that it would manipulated real estate prices when you lock things down they could go buy them up for pennies on the dollar and that's what blackrock did and that's and that's another story because it's we're on youtube that i can't even give you details for because i'm scared you'll lose your channel i mean that's how crazy that's how, how little free speech we have because you and i know we can't talk about this thing but do you think then there's going to be a shift because if you know is, is this a symptom then musk buying twitter that the restrictions of free speech have gone to an extreme and now it, the pendulum could go the other way. Well, the pendulum is going the other way, but the extreme hasn't stopped. We have a new ministry of truth. Have you heard? <laughs> they have a <laughs> mis and disinformation board. I said, I thought that was CNN, but now they have a, they've come above ground because this has already existed. And this lady, Nina Jankowicz is in charge and she sings songs about, their own conspiracy theories, the things that, you know, it's so frustrating, not be able to, you know, like 
well, I, you can say this. They blame Russia for the election, right? And that yeah, let's, stay away, let's stay away from can't away do that either. Okay. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> so they can't. Yeah. So they had a conspiracy that they promoted. And then the truthful one, the other things were true and you can't say them. The things that are not true, you can say, and they were amplified. And this is the woman who fell for every stupid conspiracy and rejected all the truthful ones is in charge of the new ministry of truth. Oh my God. And that's the nickname for is out of the, you know, 1984 book. Uh, it's very Orwellian. This is where we live. Now we have a ministry of truth run by a musical theater flunky that is going to decide whatever she deems is propaganda or not. It decides what gets to be said and what doesn't, which is unconstitutional. Like, and I hope that would go to the Supreme Court. You cannot have a government body that decides which speech is allowed, which isn't. It's all allowed. Anything that doesn't break a law, you know, advocating violence or something like that, you should be able to say. And this is what Elon Musk has said that he believes. He thinks, hey, if if you're not breaking the law where you live, then you can say it. Doesn't matter how offensive it is or how true it is. <laughs> That's the real thing you'll be able to say it. And that's how it ought to be. I mean, you, if you don't like someone's opinion, hit block, you know, or just don't read it. That's all you have to do. You know, I'm against def <laughs> defamation, but there's defamation all over Twitter, but it's all one direction. I get smeared on there. I'm being smeared on platforms that I'm not even allowed to participate on. That's messed up. Like I can't even defend myself. So some people, Ryan, are saying that Elon is so wealthy, he is part of the NWO, and this this is just going from from one part of the NWO to another part of the NWO. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what do you counter that? Is is he the lesser of two evils? At minimal, he's the lesser of two evils. He might even might even be evil. He's look if he wanted to control Congress, he could do it for far less than forty three billion dollars. Mm -hmm. Like he could buy the entire Congress for way less than that. <laughs> so, he seems to be a very rich guy with Asperger's that thought Twitter was fun and he wanted to, he likes the mudslinging back and forth. It's entertaining. He's got all the money for anything else, but he does definitely have a lot of connections to the nefarious. You know, he kind of has to because his whole business model is built around being an expert at getting government grants. But, you know, he did reject Epstein so did Steven Pinker. People are like, oh, there's a picture of him and Maxwell or there's a picture of him and so-and-so. Steve Pinker's another scientist guy. I know a scientist that works with him and and actually talked to him on, privately and he just thought they were con artists and all. And, and I believe Musk had the same opinion. So he wasn't, he didn't fall for that trap. And 100% had he, it suddenly would have come out this week, you know. Uh but yeah, he's said some things that are in line with, you know, globalist agendas or whatever. But uh, I don't care what he thinks. If he allows free speech and I get to say what I think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the truth will mow down lies in a second if it's allowed above board. I mean, that's, you know, all these topics we're not allowed to talk about. If That's why I get banned, because it, it is a threat. They are afraid of that getting out because people will gravitate to the truth so fast. There's so many people that are gaslit and 
they know what's not going on, but they don't know what's going on. Right. And they need to know. And once they just, oh, they're addicted to it once they get it. But it's very hard because if you're one of these dot connectors, that's what I kind of do, then they're going to make sure you're like digitally isolated and no one will find you because they don't, they do not want the general public to be able to, to connect the dots or have somebody who's connected the dots to tell you, Hey, this is what they did. Here's what they're doing to you now. Uh, so, but you know, I am on Twitter now and we'll, we'll see. I'm not, it's not even on my phone yet. I barely use it. Cause I'm thinking it's going to be months before Elon really can sit in the command chair. So it's not an instant fix. I wouldn't give up on him yet. And it's fine to be skeptical. Be like, Oh, I think he's just, you know, uh, a little bit, but the, you see the reaction of the left and the fact that the Biden administration made a ministry of truth and all the re and freaking out. And I think, no, that's real. That's a real reaction. They're worried this guy and they're going to intimidate him not to allow free speech. And trust me, they're digging through his entire past right now to try and find something. They're already on MSNBC and CNN with the, you know, drum roll, please. They called him a racist, right? Like that's, that's always what they do, right? Racist, sexist, homophobic. Nah, 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 nah. That's, we, we all knew that was coming and he's not a racist. He's like, He's actually the, I believe, the richest African American in the United States. He's from South Africa. Was he was he born into wealth, or did he become self-made? He was born into wealth, and he's self-made. Like he was born into wealth and turned it into a whole lot more wealth. You know, and look, business tycoons step on people and stuff. But we're talking about a guy that, you know. He's a wealthy business tycoon. I mean, he's ruthless in that edge. But you got to compare it to the Twitter before him, which is worse. You know, way worse. These people were covering up international crimes. And uh, I almost said something, but they're doing really, really bad things. And he's not, at least he's not that, right? Like, at least he wouldn't cross those lines. Christie has pointed out that Elon's parents were emerald miners. Do you know anything about that? Oh, yeah. They had money. Like, yeah. And he did, he kind of like took credit for things he didn't do. And he's, there's, there's plenty of dirt on Elon. I don't care. That is nothing compared to the stuff that the BlackRock and Vanguard have been into. Things I can't say. But, you know, it's uh it's the worst things you can think of that's all i gotta say about that what about what about elon's mission to get rid of the twitter bots have you have you picked up on that yeah and some of that's already happened because not only was there a giant increase for conservatives but there was a giant exodus for liberals uh where they were losing like thirty-five thousand followers just disappeared and he still hasn't got time. And what they're doing is they're trying to get rid of this code to add to these things so that, that they're not caught, you know, come like, oh, probably September or so when he can finally really get in there. They'll say, oh, that's not we weren't doing that. <laughs> but you're seeing it every day. And it's not because liberals are exit are on a giant exodus from Twitter. Oh, uh, this, they're doing that, too. This is my last tweet. Five hours later, they're back on, you know, because they're addicted to it. <laughs> yeah, so this viewer has sent a message in. Lena Hurley, 
Elon has said he wants to get rid of the bots on Twitter and you will need to be a human verification to use the platform. Wake up and see this is part of the digital enslavement. I mean, I don't see, I think the bots would be the digital enslavement. I mean, you're allowing AI, which is not really AI, it's just robots decide whether a journalist or a person can be in the public square. They, that shouldn't be allowed. Really, I mean, what he's saying, he wants open source for one, so all the algorithms will be available. So if there's any shenanigans of turning the volume up on one and down on another, you'd be able to see it. See. That's something he's saying he wants. And he's saying, we don't care what you say as long as it's within the law. So you really won't need a lot of people to, to go over and police things because you're not trying to police political speech. If you stop trying to do that, uh, like Miss $17 million a year has been doing, then it's unnecessary. You don't need robots to just go in and go through metadata and grab people and just erase them, right? You get put in a Twitter. Other employees have already leaked things out. There's like a red zone, an orange zone, and stuff like that. And like, so people put put in the red zone. I'm probably like deep dark red or whatever. Like, uh, you know, anybody associated with that gets put in these zones. And then you've got like someone assigned to you just waiting for you to say anything so they go, you're gone. You know, you can't, if you say, if you say the wrong thing about women's sports, you'll be banned, you know, and everybody knows what I mean. You can't do that. Um, <laughs> and, but that's an excuse because the kind of people that would see, be correct on that issue that I can't say are usually have enough, you know, uh, mental capacity to see through other things. And so it's a metadata like, well, if we ban everybody who disagrees with our version of what should be happening with women's sports, then we'll, we're just getting rid of libertarians, conservatives, free thinkers, anti-authoritarians, because mm. all of them have that position, right? Yeah. Backman has asked, what do you think, Ryan, about issues with China on Twitter? Because if China doesn't like what is going on, then Elon could lose his new factories over there. No, uh, China would just ban it within China. I mean, they could just say no Twitter in China the way they did no Facebook in China. But they're not going to cancel his factories. They need him too. So that he's, he's kind of a too big to fail type of character. And Elon, like China said, oh, you don't, okay, I'll put them in Vietnam or whatever. They'll just move to Indochina. That's been the threat. That's what Japan does. They just go, okay, we're going here. Um, and they did that because of a little bit because of the <clears throat> the flu. They and um, didn't lose a dime. China lost a lot of money and Japan just relocated some of their stuff. And, you know. It's just as cheap down there as it is China. And that, that is the kind of threat now to China's labor is they don't monopolize. They're almost slave labor they have in China. It can be replicated in Indochina um, with wages, but tax incentives and da-da-da-da-da. And so it actually is functional, which is very good for, the, for Cambodia and places like that. They're able to get more business and get off the ground. It's kind of a... A weird situation like you need enough initial capital for any means necessary so that, that you can then start paying for your own infrastructure and stuff and not loan and not have to borrow on interest and blah 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 and so that's sort of what we call the developing world that's happening now 
and and people doing all their business in China does prevent that as China gobbles it up, but it doesn't work there because it just goes to the Communist Party uh, who use it to do what they're doing in Shanghai right now. If you've seen what that is, you know. So I'm just going to look at the latest news about the financing of the deal and get your thoughts on that. So the stock right. is trading at 49 right now. Elon has off, offered 54, what was it, 54, 20, was it, 420? Yeah, um, for sure. And he is still finalizing the $44 billion to purchase Twitter. He is working to secure outside funding for the acquisition that would tie up less of his personal fortune. So he's worth estimated $245 billion, but it's tied up in the stock market. And last week he he sold eight point five billion worth of stock in Tesla, following the agreement to buy Twitter. Additional financing, which could come in the form of preferred or common equity, could reduce the twenty one billion cash contribution that he has committed to the deal, as well as a margin loan he secured against his Tesla shares. Sources familiar the matter told Reuters, banks have agreed last month to provide thirteen billion dollars in loans based on Twitter's businesses. But they refused um, at offering more debt for Musk's acquisition, given the San Francisco-based company's limited cash flow. So Musk has pledged some of his Tesla shares to banks to arrange 12.5 billion margin loan to help fund the deal. He may seek to trim the size Isn't of the margin loan based on the new investor interest in the deal financing one of the sources said. So you've got major investors such as private equity firms, hedge funds, high net worth individuals in talk with Elon about providing preferred equity financing for the acquisition, which mm -hmm. would pay a fixed dividend from Twitter in the same way that a bond or a loan pays regular interest, but would appreciate in line with the equity value of the company. Apollo Global and Uri's management are among the private equity firms that have been talked about providing oh. the financing. And <laughs> yeah. he's, he's uh, still deciding whether he will have partners team up with him in writing the equity check for the deal he's not seeking to take on more debt for the deal and he's been in talks with some of twitter's major shareholders about the possibility of them rolling their stake into the deal rather than cashing out well that's interesting uh rolling stake involves selling the majority of shares in the company while retaining a minority ownership interest uh dorsey is examining whether he will roll his take one source added institution investors such as fidelity are in talks about rolling their stake and Musk has tweeted that we would try to keep as many investors in Twitter as possible as he takes the company private. Sources have requested anonymity because the matter is confidential and all those big uh, financial companies have refused to comment. So what, what do you think about that then? Yeah, so last, there's a few points there I wanna address. And last I heard, he's looking to partner with Silver Lakes, which is who he partnered with with Tesla, uh, which would have a lot of the cash he needs. It's interesting that in there you're reading the banks refuse to go past the 13 billion because of the limited cash flow from twitter <laughs> and i'd like to know yeah why do they have such a limited cash flow how much of it is just bots and whatnot how much of it is fake right well a bank's gonna know the truth they're gonna go no nah, that company's not making money you know <laughs> it's, it's all hype that's why another reason they better sell uh they were hurting i mean it's at what did you say 49 right now or whatever um that's yeah. way up that's up almost 10 points from when when he first bought his nine and a quarter of the stock right it was in the 30s and so now it's almost 50. 
very interesting but i i do not want apollo global involved obviously that's leon yeah, black yeah crap and they're on a particular map over there of you know yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're they're mm. you know what i want to say that's let's, why let's, I don't let's, want, yeah. let's stay on elon yeah. stay on elon yeah we will <laughs> i don't but uh i think he'll go with silver lake because that's his he does business with them already and uh he'll find it and he's aware that like what is the point of replacing you know blackrock and vanguard with apollo global or something you're in the same situation again right once oh well we helped you finance it so we want to have a say mm -hmm. well he'll say well I'm doing fiduciary duties is to get the stock to go up if you want the stock to go up the best way for twitter to actually make money is to allow free speech I mean, you, you have, you know, the overwhelming majority of the world that doesn't use Twitter doesn't use Twitter because they censor everything. It's a wonderful thing if you're on the left, right, on the far left, not even regular left. They ban the regular left, too. But everybody I know is like, ah, I don't tweet. I don't mess with that because they just erase anything good. And, you know, like, yeah, if you allow free speech, it'd be an amazing place because there's there's nothing like that that has that many uh many people in english anyway there's not that many people watching uh and participating in something and so that's how it would be i mean look at just the the former president had 87 billion or sorry excuse me, 87 million followers and just got more even though he's banned <laughs> like that was more from the robots right they, they were suppressing the numbers He's starting his own thing too, Truth Social, and it is the, the hottest app in the iStore right now is not Twitter. It's uh, Trump's new Truth Social thing. That one's quite limited, though, because you have to be in the U.S. to add it. So <laughs> I'm finally allowed to participate on something that I can't because of regions because I live in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as Trump specified that he would not return to Twitter if Elon takes the helm? Yeah, I mean, he he couldn't really. I mean, his old account could be there just for the history, like of the stuff he already wrote. It'd be nice to have, but uh, he's got to go with what he's already invested in. He didn't see this coming, so he's like, "Well, we're going with Truth Social." You know, we're going over there, and you know, that might be an alternative too, where people are like, "Well, I have to guess at whether or not." Twitter is going to allow this and that. I know True Social is going to minimal allow conservative voices, right? So that I don't really want echo chambers, though. I don't want all the conservatives on one and all the liberals on another. And that's what would happen. These liberals are not going to be on True Social. They'd get they'd get annihilated. But if you allow free speech, they're going to get annihilated anyway, because nobody agrees with these far out opinions that are now causing food shortages, gas shortages, and supply chain crisis border crisis like all these things they're, they're they've labeled parents uh terrorists domestic terrorists for standing up for the children and their beliefs about what their children ought to study and i'm not even allowed to say what that is because it's youtube you know uh things that shouldn't happen in schools they're lost their mind but you know 99.99 percent of americans are on one side twitter's on the other side right but they amplify that voice. The only thing you're allowed to say is the super far left narrative. And so it becomes the reality that dies in two days. 
if you allow free speech because it, the wave of people against it would be like not not just against it adamantly against a lot of these policies that all ends and a lot of that's going to end whether twitter gets free or not uh this november because you're looking at a, the democrats losing about 70 seats the, the republicans could have 120 seats in congress triple digit majority uh because everybody is so sick of of it and you can see that in financial markets too when you look at netflix you look at disney Walt disney is the second biggest media company in the world they've lost 71 points in the last 52 weeks 21 points in the last month they're going down a point a day like i haven't seen that since i don't that time bush fainted there we had a thing it's really never disney especially they've just tanked down and their ceos and stuff have been caught on film saying bleep, 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 bleep. can't say on youtube and the public didn't like it and it's go woke go broke right uh, well they're going that direction and then desantis took away their sovereign state status it was weird disney had the the same kind of status as an indian reservation except a lot of indian reservations don't even have the status they're supposed to disney had more sovereignty rights than native americans i just saw this in the news today could you, could you explain what this means yeah so like disney was like its own little country inside of florida disney world was like its own little country inside of florida like the vatican yeah they could they had their own tax they didn't have to pay taxes they didn't have they had little little small state sovereignty with state within a state you can think of it like that and they could i mean if they they weren't going to but they could have built a nuclear power plant at disney if they wanted to <laughs> like they could have done that um they had their own police they had their own everything you know so like if you're not taking taxes then you don't get public works and you don't get the cops and fire department stuff like that but they just did private all that everything Showing, by the way, that, oh, look, you if your state's small enough, you got enough money, you can pay for all these things privately. You know? But they enjoyed that, and uh, now they're going to be paying taxes in Florida, uh, which they should have anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm for equality. I'd rather nobody pay taxes, but it, you know, that's not the case. So if they don't have to pay taxes, neither should anyone else. Well, if everyone else has to pay taxes, then so should Disney, and they're going to be paying in the millions now. And they're already going in the hole as people don't want to go to their parks and don't want to participate in their in their cartoons and all the other things they sell because it's junk now. They've, they've politicized children's shows and that nobody wants that. And it's sad because Disney used to be the fun, family friendly. Oh, if it's a Disney movie, I'm, it's, you know, you don't even have to screen it or anything. You know, it's going to be OK. You don't know that anymore. Plus, they ruined Star Wars, which pissed a lot of people off. <laughs> <laughs> what was this about the uh, cartoon, the Meghan Markle cartoon called Pearl, that got pulled? Have you heard about this? Was that Netflix yeah. or Disney? Yeah, that didn't work. Um, that's been pulled. There's, man, they had one so bad. It was like an Asian family that could turn into panda bears. Can you imagine? <laughs> I thought that was a joke. Like, no, come on. That was that was a real thing they went with. And it's just 
oh, it was disgusting. The lines in there are all, uh, it's like they already have Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and, da, 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 and then they got to like put their message into cartoons. Right. And it's adult issues, you know, and they think, oh, I'm going to add this to it for no reason. Just sh shove in the mm, agenda. Right. And parents are seeing this. Another thing that happened was because of the, the event, a lot of people are on remote learning and parents were, you know, looking at these zoom classes and seeing what some of these teachers, the filth they were giving their kids. And so they're getting more involved. They go, what you tell them what, you know, uh, like sex ed in kindergarten, stuff like that. And Ron DeSantis got rid of that, at least at least up until fourth grade. At least there's a barrier somewhere. Like that's how far in our own end zone we are that we that's an American football reference. So it means like you are you're trying to get to their goal and you're almost near your own goal. That's what I mean. We're so far in our own end zone that we're like, yeah, well, at least they can't do it to eight year olds. You know, <laughs> that's where the line is. But yeah, it's a lot of these companies are tanking. And the pearl, I never, I never watch. I just go, oh, it's filthy and the Merkel thing. But um, yeah, that's gone anyway. And they, there was another one got pulled. We'll see yeah, it in plus. I've, I've been watching a YouTube channel called The Quartering, and he really breaks down all of these companies that are getting hit right now because of the over investments in woke. Uh huh. Yeah, and Disney Park should have been doing well because it's in a state that doesn't have restrictions and a lot of people were going there because you could, right. Then they saw a lot of their, you know, their, their president just capitulated to this woke mob. A lot of the Disney employees just quit. They're like, I can't there. You can't say ladies and gentlemen, you have to call them fellow dreamers or whatever. <laughs> like you can't use anything that has denotes sexuality or gender at all. Uh, and so they, they're like, I'm afraid to talk. Like if I use the wrong pronoun or whatever, I'll get fired and it's stressful and it's not fun. It ruined the magic, you know, and there's nothing wrong with ladies and gentlemen, you know? And, uh, cause even if you transition, you're still one or the other, like it, it, whatever they, um, they don't want to work there. And then they've hired a bunch of wackos that are obsessed with this stuff. And they don't realize how out of touch, how out of tune they are with the general public because they live in the Twitter sphere, right? <laughs> Their little bubble. That's the universe. Everybody's into this green hair dye stuff or whatever. And everyone isn't. And they're paying for it financially. And they and they're just like, oh, they're just they're just prejudiced. I'm like, no, <laughs> you're prejudiced and nobody likes that. That's why they don't want to be doing business with you. And they don't want their kids anywhere near it. I can say A and C report now makes more money than CNN plus. True. People need to click over and, and go yeah. down to the ANC report and support Ryan stuff. Ryan, we've um, I've got loads more to say about Twitter, but we've only got twenty minutes left. And I know there's some other subjects we were gonna cover here, like uh Johnny well, Depp, you know uh, and, and Assange. Oh, we'll talk about a sign. I was just a quick question. Have you noticed a change on your Twitter? You got a sizable over hundred K on there, like more interaction or more people seeing or anything like that. I would just say that there seems to be a new energy entering the platform. People are coming on with hope that Elon is going to make the right changes 
and free speech is going to get increased. And I think you've got people coming back to Twitter who had abandoned Twitter with that hope. Uh, hopefully it will go through because um, there is still, what was it? He's, he's going to have to pay a 1 billion. Elon Musk will have to pay a 1 billion termination fee to Twitter if he walks away from the deal. And the social media company could also sue him to complete the deal. So it's not a done deal yet. There are many variables at play. And the fact that it's 49 and, you know, the takeover price is 54. And you, like you said, it's going to take three to six months for, for the deal to go through. So you've got this um, risk premium right now whereby people can invest, make that quick pop if it does go through. But there's all, always the risk that something out of the blue could happen. Because in the past, um, he has walked away from some deals. So that's Isn't like it funny, people. too, that they – I don't think you can back out of this one, but um... – it's hilarious that nobody's making the argument that there wasn't free speech before, right? They're all like, we can't allow free speech. You got to have some censorship. Uh, no one's saying, well, don't, didn't we already have a, wasn't it already you could say anything free? Because everybody knows you couldn't. Everybody knows it was politically slanted and that they just went after a particular viewpoint and canceled it. And they're like, but, and, and uh, this is the best put private company in Twitter and do the dates before the Elon takeover and after, because all their whole it's private company can do what it wants. <laughs> now it's almost gonna, it really is going to be a private company and, and what he wants and losing their minds. They don't, wait, you wait, obey the constitution. You can't do that. Right. They loved it when it was in their favor. They do not want it to be neutral because neutral means the end of the radical left because nobody is behind them. So if you join the stream, I'm here with Ryan D. His new Twitter link is in the description box below the video. So please support him as he is resurrected on that platform. Do you want to go over to some Assange or some Depp next? Either. Well, you know, I think Julian Assange is more important than Johnny Depp. I mean, I not that I'd. Not that it doesn't matter. I think Johnny Depp is uh, a victim of kind of the hyperactive Me Too, but um, man, Julian Assange. That's there's a, that relates to Twitter too because here's a guy. You can talk about censorship. They took the last half of his life away, locked in, basically hiding in an embassy and then prison, and then you know most likely extradited to the U.S. Um, you know, he's either going to land in jail in the U.S. or they may hand him over to Australia, whatever. He's still going to be in a cage the rest of his life. And only thing he's guilty of is reporting on government crimes. He did journalism like you're supposed to. But he didn't really get in trouble until he went after the left. He had been reporting on the Iraq war and on Bush's thing and all that, and everybody loved him. And then he went after Hillary <laughs> and then he's in jail. I wish Trump had pardoned him. I know. Well, he couldn't pardon him because he he wasn't convicted of a crime in the U.S. Oh, you true. can't pardon somebody that's not convicted. So he was in jail in the U.K. So, but he he, he wasn't going to do that. Like Trump was, uh, unfortunately, just as sold on that anti-Assange narrative of of like treason like it's not treason he's not american <laughs> so if trump got back in this couldn't be reversed by him what's going on now it you'd have to break the kushner influence over trump if you want him sometimes trump would just go 
ignore all his advisors and do his own thing. And that's when he was the best. Whenever he did anything right, and he did sometimes, uh, it was he just did it solo, right? Every time he listened to the group around him, it was like, oh, man, why did you hire John Bolton? Because Sheldon Adelson paid him to. Well, Sheldon Adelson's dead, right? After that guy died, Trump brought in Douglas McGregor. He did all these good decisions, but it was only he only had like a month and a half left of his presidency. And Doug McGregor is good on the <laughs> the thing going on in Europe. Uh, you know, he's been truthful on that. <clears throat> so Assange has uh, got no hope then. There's no hope because if he lands in America, he's going to be buried, isn't he, in in the in the, the incarceration system? Uh they may just hand him over to Australia after they convict him uh, because there's such an outrage from the American public that if they bring him to the U S and he, you know, suicides in jail or whatever, uh, there's going to be violence. So it, believe it or not, like <laughs> the American public's just as pissed about this as the British or anyone else. Like everybody thinks he should be free. Most of the things that he was tattletailing on were things our government did. It's a lot of, I reported on the same stuff. I mean, oh, collateral damage. Like, we, like, did anybody not know we killed civilians in Iraq? Like, is that really shocking? I don't think that's the stuff he's in trouble for. He's in trouble for stuff you can't say on YouTube, but that he verified. That's why he's really there. So the amount of time he's done now... If you look at the amount of time that Chelsea Manning served, and then you've got all this back time that Julian has served. Yep. You know, and the main witness against him admitted he lied. There wow. were, he didn't hack anything or that he's in trouble because it, he reported on government crimes, which you're not allowed to do. And that's to Leonard Pelter, to Gary Webb, to, you know, name they've, they've killed other people for the same thing. So is it they have to absolutely make an example out of him so that others don't follow in his footsteps? Is that where yeah. they're coming from? Yes, now? they want to crush him. Because if he gets out, like I just imagine how great this would be. Not only is that just just for him, just for his family, just for it would allow journalists, you know, a breath like, oh, the public's on our side. The pressure worked. They got him out of there. And you might be allowed to condemn some of the things that are going on. There's a particular conflict that we're not allowed to talk about going on right now that, oh, my God, I have so much to say about it uh, and the corruption and how that ties to particular families and that map over there. And but they they're like, no, you, you nobody in the three letter networks are going to say it. And you're not allowed to say it on Google and you're not allowed to say it anywhere. Maybe I'll be able to post about it on Twitter in a few months. But they've been banning journalists. And so is PayPal for talking about that conflict, too. Uh, other than you got to be totally on the blue and yellow side. That's it. That's, you know, that's it. And if you say anything, any nuanced view at all, you're gone. Uh, you will not be able to have a payment processor. You will not be able to have social media. And if you do that in the, I don't know, legacy media, you'll get fired. So, you know, how are we supposed to, we don't have a, a WikiLeaks type of thing anymore. There's no, like we just needed a single place where there's the truth. That's why WikiLeaks was so dangerous, right? And why Assange was they, you know, the guy he could verify things, and he was sniffing around about Seth Rich. Then we'll just pause that story, and that 
was dangerous uh, because of the people behind what happened to that person. So, that, so do you do you think if um, Twitter <laughs> is fixed, if Twitter is fixed by Elon, let's say in an ideal world, mm-hmm. does that give us hope that the like Facebook and Google will have to reform somewhat? Otherwise, everyone will just go to Twitter. They'll lose their customer base. Well, they're floating off government subsidies anyway. Like YouTube already loses money, but they get so much from China and the Saudis and the CIA. You know, they don't care if they lose money. So it's not about whether there's users or not. But if he fixes Twitter, another thing he could do is add short videos to Twitter like Gab does, you know, and that competes with YouTube. Um, but yeah, for politics, like YouTube will still have videos about everything else. Because we're live on know. Twitter right now, Ryan. Oh yeah, cool. Like so, you, <laughs> here you go. Uh, good thing I'm button my lip on a lot of. It. I'm sorry I'm saying I can't get into that. I can't get into that. That's not my rules. That's YouTube, and I think Sean's appreciative of it. But you, um, yeah, if he fixes it and it's making money, at least for the political like chunk of audience, they're gonna leave Facebook and YouTube and go to Twitter. If you want to go to Facebook to take pictures of your food and show it to people or talk about anything that's not political or use YouTube for just entertainment or music or something, then I guess you can. But a large chunk of the people using all these platforms are into politics. That's probably like number two after porn. Like that's the internet is politics. And uh, when I say porn, I I mean like the attention whores that it's not actually porn, but almost, and they put that all over Instagram and stuff. And cause they, you know, you get all these followers because you're in a bikini with butter on your butt or whatever like that. All that attention grabbing nonsense will still be allowed and that'll be their base. But Twitter's base is going to be the political arena because it'll be the only place you're allowed to talk that has an audience. So well, you can do that on BK right now. I'm just <laughs> and that about, they do have half a billion users. We've got about seven or eight minutes left. And so what, what's your thoughts on Depp? Do you think he's going to win the defamation? I just watched, saw one survey. And the public was voted 95% that he has shown defamation. Yeah, I mean, he ought to, but you know, it's, I don't have a lot of faith in the courts. If you want to go based on the arguments, yeah, that woman's a monster, right? And uh, a lot of, and, you know, and Depp did very well. He is an actor, and that does help you in a court case. But, uh, both of them are messed up, man. I mean, that was a marriage of Mel, and they both, I mean, he's a drug addict. There is a lot of things. It's, but you know, she's the one who smashed his finger and all, and it was abusive, and it's recorded. I mean, it, you know, yeah, it's a slam dunk case, but it's just whether or not you know uh, what the judge thinks. That's all that really matters. I think. Uh, well, she, she's not testified yet, so do you think that many people are saying it's a slam dunk case just based on his side of the story, but hers will come, start to come out tomorrow when she testifies, and that that could change. It's been like all this stuff that's coming out in the trial has already come out online anyway. You know, like there isn't anything new. Like this has been in the, uh, what do you call it? The basement arena or whatever. They're like, ooh, listen to this. She pooed in the bed. Uh, <laughs> da, 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 da. Like, so her side and his side have been out on the, the web, dark, whatever you call it. It's been that gossip channel. It's all over the place. Now it's just sort of officially being drawn out drawn out in court 
we know what she's going to say about him and da 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 cuz that's already out there too and even with both sides out there the public has all been on Depp's side which is unusual cuz usually people just favor the woman period like just they oh you you must have been a domestic abuser and it's weird cuz Depp's like admitting to being you know pretty bad husband and a drunk and a drug addict and all that buddy but he's willing to admit all that because there are things worse than that which is being a domestic abuser right he was getting abused and that probably added to his drug problems but she knew johnny depp did drugs before everybody knew he johnny depp was doing drugs before they got married like that's that's johnny depp he's an actor and he likes his pills or whatever so she knew what she was walking into, but I don't think he knew what he was walking into like that, that some of the stuff, some women are looking at the things she's doing and going, Hey, I'm pretty normal after all. <laughs> like, what, what do you think about it. the makeup, the makeup company coming forward and saying that that makeup wasn't even invented when she said she was worried. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, she's just, she's woven so many lies and like a girl that looks like that, and she can act too, not as well as him, but you know, anybody she tells something to in confidence is just going to be on her side. Oh, poor baby. Like when she, and then he did, they're going to act like they totally believe her or whatever. Right. And so she thinks she's got a good standing, even though she's got all these contradictions and stuff. Cause she's surrounded by yes, men are going to blow smoke up her butt because that's how guys are around pretty women. They just, yes, you're right. You know, but she's not right. <laughs> and the court didn't care. And things like you screwing up the makeup, you know, that's you're gonna get caught on stuff like that. Uh and she is, and you know, she'll get what she deserves. But I mean, they should have just should've just divorced a long time ago. And but and it's sad that uh no one should have their marriage disputes out in the public like this right anybody other people that got divorced it wouldn't matter but it's because they're celebrities oh not the whole world but you know a lot of people are watching they're very personal like embarrassing private things uh which i feel like whatever defamation there was this trial is worse right you're getting you're having to come clean on all of it but i think he just he just wants some kind of retribution to her so he he doesn't be like oh yeah I don't care if the world knows, you know I'm I'm meek and a pussy and I do drugs and whatever you know as long as Amber gets punished, there's yeah, some real uh, hatred I've never, there. I've never <laughs> seen uh, any mass fascination with a legal case since OJ was uh, on the run and then the OJ the OJ trial and, and and things like that. It just seems to be one of the biggest. OJ things. was huge. Uh, maybe the. Benet Ramsey trial had a kind of Menendez brothers. Day, Menendez brothers. Yeah, yeah. I would have said, you know, there was a trial that would have had that public interest, but they wouldn't allow any cameras or anything. <laughs> you know what that was? <laughs> yeah, that would have been the biggest one ever. But no. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's been a case like this, not since OJ. There have been a sort of some smaller, yeah, the Menendez brothers or. And he, that, uh, like you said, Johnny must have calculated, you know, everything is going to have to come out on Front Street. But, the, you know, that is worth it compared to where I am now to get my I think it's worth back. it and it's on the internet anyway. Like, 
most of their beef, the, I don't know, the paparazzi, whatever, it's somehow all gotten online and people have been talking about it now way more. And, uh, man, he took the attention away from Will Smith and Chris Rock, right? <laughs> that died right away because it's all about Johnny Depp. Uh, you know, but got to sneeze. <laughs> so we're, we're, we've run out of time, Ryan. So what? Huge thank you as always, brother. It's a great pleasure, and I know you stay up in the night to do these. Really appreciate it. And we've got your link for your Twitter. I got some Seven Eleven information. If what, you know what, what I'm saying. What other? Yeah. What? Yeah, we could do that at another time. What? Where else? Where else can people find you, Ryan? I have a Telegram. It's uh, t.me slash ANC report. And we we're talking about all the things you're not allowed to talk about in there. And there's the, at real, can I say my name? Uh, is that taboo? Yeah, they <laughs> so know your name. in the description. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. It's at the real Ryan Dawson. And then uh, it's sad. I don't know if I can say my name. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I have a sub stack. As well, that's just my name on Substack, and that's been pretty good for free speech. I don't rock the boat too much there, but we've been, you know, it's it's cool. You can do videos there now too, and uh, that seems to be where a lot of people, Glenn Greenwald, and a lot of a lot of people that Glenn Greenwald basically quit his company over the story you're not allowed to talk about, and then got vindicated by the New York Times, Washington Post. Um, Still, even with papers of record admitting this particular thing is true, you still can't talk about it on YouTube. It's amazing. Yeah, and we have yeah. run out of time. We've got another guest coming in. So please go over and at the very least follow Ryan and at the very most hit him up for his map, hit him up for his books. Oh, yes. And take some deep dives into his very well-researched collection of literature and maps, of which there are many. So... All right. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Robert. You take care. Yes. You take care. Thanks for the opportunity, Sean. I will put links on my Twitter right now. There you go. All right. Thank you so much, Ryan. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right. What a great guest. One of our most requested ever. Uh, We've got Andrew coming back in right now. And and we're going (laughs) to bring on our next guest, which is Emily D. Baker. Emily has been an attorney for over 15 years. Her YouTube channel provides legal analysis that helps her viewers understand the law with humor. You don't like that, do you, Andrew? Her in-depth coverage of the British Spears conservatorship case gained national recognition. However, tonight she'll be providing us with expert opinion on the ongoing Depp versus Heard. Oh, that's going to be fascinating then, isn't it? I think, um, yeah, and she's just had, I don't know, you know, while, while you've been nattering away, she's been having a, a live stream of the case and sort of commenting on it. And she's been having in there, uh, you know, 25,000 people at a time just watching. Oh, my goodness. I imagine that yeah. she's probably going to want to stay with that then. Well, and yet, I think <laughs> she is coming and just leaving it up, I believe. That's the latest I've heard. So she is going to pop in here. Um, and she's got 25k on a live stream 25k on a live stream so what I mean I'm telling Ashley change you know I'm sure the viewers don't mind seeing how the sausage is made change the titles put her name everywhere put Johnny Depp (laughs) everywhere Amber Heard get them over here pop a little thing in the corner of the stream of the court case and we'll be swimming in in viewers (laughs) 
I don't know whether to watch you now, interview her, or just go over to her channel. <laughs> um, I think you should watch me, but not this this one. Maybe the, what, the video, private video I sent you. No, I'm joking. This is what I'm talking about. So we were contemplating, when, when Amber Heard does some testimony, we were contemplating broadcasting that on this channel and having me do a running commentary on it. So let's... Yeah. Let's see what the evening viewers would, will vote on that. So if you would like to see me do a running commentary on Amber Heard's testimony live, put a one in the chat right now. If you couldn't care less about that and it would ruin your evening, put a two in the chat right now and we will collate those numbers and see if we can set that up because it might take a little bit of technology to do that. There you go. Got a couple of ones <clears throat> coming in. Yeah, yep. a lot of ones. ones Good bunch of ones. In. Thank you guys. All the Thank ones. You guys. Stephanie, Nikki. Yep. They want you doing it, mate. Oh, looks people. like it's about three quarters ones. Hang on, quarter a... twos right now. It looks like controversial comment I put on the screen. Not answering as you do not ask our cues. <laughs> Thank you, Easy. You're trying to get me banned off this platform. Oh, she is indeed here. So I'm going to bounce off. So you enjoy, Andrew. Okay, cheers, mate. Speak to you in a bit. Cheers. ...building fates. Hey, Emily. That, that ...he may be throwing his papers Hello, on. Emily, you're, you're on. Are you just yet? I'm so terribly sorry. Shall, shall I take you off the screen for a second? I can hear you. Mouth a little more. Uh -oh. he may but now I'm getting audio. Apologies. We can hear your stream. Yes, it's been... Um, it's definitely been a busy day. Apologies. <laughs> what, what amazing hair you have. Thank you so much. It's so nice to meet you. And again, it's just been a crazy day. So We've met before, Eric, on Eric's show. Sorry, Eric Hunley. We, we were on his talk, talking about yeah. his cop, copyright stuff. Do you remember? That's right. It was lovely. It's been, I've been absolutely wild today. So I apologize for being able to hear the stream. So good to see you. Thank you, everybody. Again, apologies. Don't worry at all. You're because we were just well. I was because yes. Sean and I alternate uh, who's interviewing. So he was just interviewing, and I saw that you had twenty five thousand people watching your live stream. I mean, we were up to thirty two thousand earlier today. I've they're on direct examination of an expert. It'll be fine. They'll be fine. They're oh my god, lovely. Hopefully, everyone will be kind. <laughs> and you're leaving this. That's incredible. So it's going well. That's nice. And what what's going on? What's the latest? What's happening right right this second? What's going right on? Right this second. So this morning. <laughs> was a very fiery day in court. We just finished Johnny Depp's case in chief, which means he's rested his case and there was a motion to dismiss from Amber Heard's lawyers. It was very well argued. Uh, points, Legal points were made by Amber Heard's team for sure that we'll see in closing. But Johnny Depp's team brought the fire in their rebuttal to that. And when Amber Heard's legal team and her lawyer that was arguing Rottenborn got up, he was like, I think Mr. Chu wrote this for two audiences. And we're all like, uh, obviously. <laughs> he wrote it for two audiences. He wrote it for a streaming audience. And he came in with the, she's the abuser, and the finger pointing and the the loud language. And he called the ACU, ACLU disgusting. And he, he brought the fire. It was very interesting to watch. But that's all outside the presence of the jury, just for the judge and the audience at home. And then we are now in the first witness of Amber Heard's case in chief, a forensic psychologist who's talking about relational or interpersonal violence and domestic violence, and is going to be talking a very, maybe the rest of the day about that. Um, if not, we'll get to Amber Heard this afternoon, but she'll probably start her testimony tomorrow morning. 
What is a deal legally? Because I keep hearing all these people who seem to be therapists and nurses and things like that talking smack about Amber Heard. Um, I think people say smack, don't they? So I'm, I'm with them. I don't know what they mean. I don't know. They're talking <laughs> smack. And uh, what's the deal with like the Hippocratic Oath and stuff like that? I mean, are they allowed to just come out and say all this stuff? Well, they're being compelled by the court. So they are allowed to be compelled. But this is a civil case. It's different than a criminal case. And they have a lot of this testimony has been agreed. The parties have filed HIPAA waivers, which means they've waived some of this right to have it private because they've put all of this at issue because it's a defamation case relating to this type of abuse, because they've sought treatment for this type of abuse. But right now it's experts that are testifying. So these individuals submitted, well, Amber Heard, Johnny Depp didn't, but submitted themselves to these evaluations to have it bolster their own case. They're using it to bolster um, their own side. So that's why this is all coming in. A lot of it's been agreed to. It's not coming out well, though, for Amber. Why would she have agreed to that? Do you think she thought that the psych psychotherapists all had like better views of her? Well, the only ones we've seen so far were called by Johnny Depp's team. We haven't seen until now the one called by Amber Heard's team. The one called by Amber Heard's team is going to fight against everything the one from Johnny Depp's team said. So Johnny Depp got to go first, which can be very damaging in the court of public opinion because a lot of people have checked out three weeks in, well, four weeks in now, and they're over it. But now we're just getting into her experts to say, no, 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 that's not right. This is how it is. Let me explain. So that's what's happening. That's so unfair because lay people like me, like you say, I'm watching it and I'm just because I wanted to I like to try and have the central view, the moderate and be like, well, she can't. Everyone's having a go at her, but maybe there's some misogyny in that and there's some this and that going on. And then uh, just just like professional after professional person coming on and saying horrible, awful things about her has just swayed me. And I'm just like, well, I've, yeah, checked out now. Well, we and we haven't. That's the hard part about not getting to her case. This is why who sues first matters so much because their case goes first. They bear the burden of proof. They get to go twice in closing. They get to have rebuttal witnesses. Who sues first mattered very, very much here. I think it's why Johnny Depp sued so quickly after the uh, op-ed was released to be the one that sued first. Yes, she's countersuing him, but it doesn't really matter because that's all going to get buried under who goes first. And he went first and it very much mattered. Though I think a lot of people, because we're in this unique position where there was the UK case, um, I think a lot of people really do feel that they've heard Amber's side's side already. So they've heard from her because they heard from her in the UK case. They've seen what she's put out there. So this is the first time we're really seeing all of Johnny Depp's side that people wanted to see in the UK case. So I think people did have their minds made up a little bit going in based on that case coming into this case. And that's, I think why people are so quick to say, I don't care that I haven't seen her side. I've seen her side. I've been seeing her side. I've now seen his side and now I'm done. I think that's where we're getting that from. Let's fill people in then as to what the UK case was. And I suppose just a bit of background because a lot of us are just sort of a caught in the middle of this and we're going, wait, how did this start again? We're all just watching. So yeah. this case that's currently in Virginia in front of a jury live streaming every day is a defamation case. Johnny Depp sued Amber Heard over things that she said in a 2018 op-ed in the Washington Post. She is countersuing him for statements that his lawyer said about her in various publications. Most of her claims were dismissed. A very few have remained that she is trying to prove. That's what's going on currently. The UK case happened in trial in 2020, and that was over Johnny Depp suing the UK Sun for a headline calling Johnny Depp a white 
Johnny Depp a wife beater, saying, how can J.K. Rowling be happy with having wife beater Johnny Depp in this role um, in whatever Harry Potter crimes um, of fantastic beasts. fantastic beasts, having him as a part of this series. But the standard in the UK is different. The legal system is different. And it was decided by a judge, not a jury. And in that case, the question was, did the UK Sun get enough information from Amber Heard that their statement was more likely than not true and therefore not defamatory? Like, did they get enough information from Amber Heard that it's fair that they used those words? And the judge said, yeah, it's they had enough information. We think some of these instances are made up, but some of these instances we think there was violence and it's enough to call him a wife beater in that circumstance. Different standard of proof different legal system and Johnny Depp didn't get to present as much rebuttal evidence because it was whether the UK son believed Amber Heard, not whether she was telling the absolute truth. It's whether they could rely on it. So that's, could they rely on what she said? Did they have enough of a reasonable basis? Did they do enough to go beyond just taking her at, um, at her word? And they, they're like, we had pictures and we had these statements and we had audio recordings. We had enough here. And so that's where we're at. Wow. So what I mean, I used to work at the Sun, which I'm not proud of. It was just my first job in journalism. I mean, I think that's fair. It's okay. We're not going to skewer you for it. But I I wasn't sued by anyone. Well, that's good. I realized my definition was off. Sorry about that as I came in and didn't do the things. I'm like, why don't I look crisper? But it's very interesting seeing um, it's very interesting seeing the difference between the two. I get a lot of questions about can what happens here undo the UK case? It can't. That case is done. It's over. And that's what it is. Yeah. That Fort, fortunately for the Sun, who have been in trouble before for you know hacking into people's phones and things like that, of course. I mean, yeah, they're not they're not unfamiliar with litigation. The question <laughs> come up here about why um, why Amber Heard was sued and not the Washington Post, who published the piece, and that's coming up and it's going to keep coming up a bit here because Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, he did not sue the publication. In the UK, he sued the publication. And is that is that a big difference between defamation laws in the UK and the US? It's like you go after the publication in what in the UK and the the person. No. I think it's strategy here. Um, I don't think he wanted to deal with the money of the Washington Post. I think this is him versus her. Her side's going to spin it as this is him being vindictive, and he's going to spin it as this is between her and I. She's the one who said it, not the Washington Post. She and the ACLU concocted this article, um, and the Washington Post was just almost. Um, the the platform that was used. It'd be like trying to sue YouTube over something that was said on their platform. It's the creator that's speaking it, not the publication. I think that's the angle that Depp's team will go with. That's something that, I mean, we always worry about on this show. If somebody says something, I was threatened with litigation just recently, actually, by an ex-Jehovah's Witness called Lloyd Evans. And he said, if you speak to my accusers, because he was being accused of sexual things, then I will add you to my litigation. I've been accused. I've been uh, not accused of anything. I have been threatened as well with litigation. People have hmm. sent me subpoenas for conversations. I'm like, you can't do that, but keep trying. So oh, interesting. Yep. It's interesting. I mean, that's, that's when you talk about things on the internet, someone's going to take exception at some point. Um, in this case, it really is just going to be, did Amber Heard lie? Does the jury believe she lied? Was there mutual abuse? Which is why all the nastiness in their relationship is playing out um, in so much detail. Yeah, that it doesn't look good for her. Do you think she's like sitting there biting her tongue and just what what instructions do you think she's been given by her lawyers? Because she, what face can you make when people are just saying horrible things about you? 
she's she's in a no win situation with her faces in court because they are there are cameras on her and if she has no emotion then she has no emotion if she had too much emotion then people would think she's being manipulative she's in a no win situation where johnny depp gets to laugh in court and be snarky and eat gummy bears and nobody's saying anything about it the gummy bears were a little much for me but i didn't Amber- see that <laughs> Amber Heard's in a no-win situation with how she arranges her face in court, and I would have I would have told her to stay neutral, to not try to force emotion. If she has natural emotion, don't try to suppress it because it can come across as hiding something. And she's going to get on the stand. The jury's going to see her, so they're seeing her in court. They're sitting there looking at her and Johnny Depp at counsel tables, so they're seeing this day in and day out, not just us. She needs to she needs to be attentive but she needs to also not be overly expressive. It's a very fine line to walk. And I wonder if that's part of why she fired her PR team and has now hired a new one. Mm. Yeah, that was interesting as well. It's interesting to hear you talk, and I guess because you are a professional, you are a professional person to hear that you you don't seem uh, entirely, you know, in the Johnny camp because everyone I'm speaking to, everyone I'm seeing is just like, oh, she's this and she's that. Um, and it's it's sometimes a relief to just hear somebody talk in a professional way and just go like, well, wait a minute and all that. Do, do, do you think I'm like interested? Oh, in, I, I'm very interested in this case, and I'm really trying to look at it from what the jury knows now. And I I I mean I've been a lawyer almost 17 years, so parsing you know the Milani stuff that's happening over on TikTok that I love. I love the shade of it all. It's fantastically interesting. But trying to parse that from what this jury knows is something that's very important to my analysis of this case, because what I worry will happen is the court of public opinions going so far one direction. If this jury finds that neither of them defame the other, people are going to be like, what's happening? And I'm like, you're not paying attention to what's happening in the four walls of the courtroom, because what's happening in the four walls of the courtroom is a very important consideration. So do I think that... um Johnny Depp has been unfairly maybe castigated in the court of public opinion prior to this, perhaps. Is there more to a story? Yes. Are there two sides to every story? Absolutely. And we've only heard one of them in court right now. The jury's only heard one of them in court right now. Typically, going on what you're just saying, actually, typically you're not allowed to, you know, newspapers can't publish stuff about, you know, uh, something, a crime that happened before the court gets together, right? Does that happen in the U.S. as well? Um, no, they they publish accusations all the time. People are arrested oh. for this, charged with that. No, that happens all the time. Um, there's oh. no somebody's actually determined to have done something wrong before it's all over the media. No, that doesn't. Okay, because in the UK you can't do that, can you? Do you know no, about uh, that? Uh, arrest reports here? Somebody arrested for, and charged with whatever is regularly put out into the media here. So you know, mm. it doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be proven in court for it to be discussed in the media. I don't mm. know if that's to anyone's benefit, but that's how it is. Because the reason they think they do that in the UK is because you don't want to make the jury biased or or something like that. You know, they're reading all this outside information written by potentially biased writers and journalists and things. This case is just mad because the whole world is just sensationalizing every moment. How can you not be uh, swayed by it? It, it, it is. Um, and that's one of the things I really try to do in my content is say, remember, you know, this is what we've heard. This is what we're going to hear. This is what we've already heard. And and do what the jury is doing. They're not supposed to make up their minds yet. They're supposed to be open to new information. And I think it can be an uncomfortable thing to be open to new information, but it's also a necessary exercise. The first story you hear is not necessarily 
all of the story and having to sit there and go, but what else do we know? And how do we balance this against that? Because the two sides are advocates. They're going to tell the story that benefits them the best. The jury's job is to figure out what the facts actually are in the middle. And that's really what everybody's trying to do online. But they're right now doing it with half of the information. Not that I think Amber Heard never did anything against Johnny Depp. It's very clear she severed his finger and punched him in the face and all the rest of it. But will a jury determine that he never abused her in any way? Will they think that the audio is abusive? I don't know yet because we're not done yet. Right. And that's something that I forget, actually. It's not like who's the nicer person wins this case, who's the non-abuser. It's proving that she lied about him abusing. So does it even matter if she, unless we're talking about self-defense, I suppose, does it matter about all the horrible things about her? It does, I think, because that is going to be his argument, is that I only yelled back. I didn't. She abused me. I responded. And so that's where the direction I think we're going to go on cross-examination this afternoon with this expert that's in court right now. And what is a wife beater technically? Is that somebody who has hit someone several times or once or what? And that's the UK case. This case, it's abuse. She says, I was a victim of domestic abuse. So how do you define abuse? And the experts are saying, Verbal is abuse, emotional is abuse, it's beyond physical abuse. But there's also a headline in one of them that says, I spoke up against sexual violence. And so there's argument over that headline as well. There's three counts of defamation here, and Johnny Depp only needs to win one of them. And we will see what this jury does. The jury could say to all of them, you, you all are horrible, and you didn't defame each other. It's all true. You abused her. He abused you. All of you are abusive. Go away. They could very, very realistically do that at the end of the day. Do you think that's likely? And do you think that Johnny Depp's and Amber Heard's future careers depend on the outcome of this case? I think it's possible. I worry that in this case, so much has come out that their careers are already where they're going to be, no matter who wins the defamation case. Wow. Because so far, how it's going, I feel like Johnny Depp might be welcomed back. Maybe. Um, Hmm. But we'll see. I mean, there's quite a long history of of drug and alcohol use. I don't know how much Hollywood cares about that. I don't know if Disney is like too much has come out in the public. There's going to be some very, very um, difficult allegations made against Amber Heard that her team alluded to in opening statements that they're getting into now about sexual violence and sexual assault of Amber Heard within their marriage. So it might be like, look, even if they're finding it's not defamatory, it's still too much. Um, And it might still be too much. I'm not sure where it will go um i think his best chance is to win at least one count is this an issue with the u.s system of of courts being so open and publicized and televised because even if he does win he's had to to, in order to win he's had to admit to a lot of things that are private he's lost his right to privacy and so has she uh because we watch and i suppose is that weighed up against the the transparency that's why these things have to be filmed Um, so cameras in the courtroom is an interesting conversation and we could probably talk for an hour at least on it, but in federal courts, they are not allowed in state courts. It's a case by case basis. Some cases they're not allowed. Some cases they are Johnny Depp very much when it cameras in this court, but our system of justice started really as a reactionary system of you have the right to see your accuser. You have the right to see what's said. And the public has a right to know how the laws are being kind of meted out. And we have the right to see a public trial. There's not going to be, um, you know, somebody's accusing you and you're hauled off on charges. And that's the end of the day. They are meant to be public proceedings. And so 
our technology has now gotten to the point where the definition of public proceeding has expanded beyond just those that can walk down to the courthouse in Virginia and get a wristband and get in. So the entire world is now part of the public proceeding. And it's my um, audience the last few days has been tremendously international. There is quite a lot of interest in these very large celebrities playing out every messy nuance and every text message and every fight of their relationship. And also things like, you know, Ben King, who is this very, to me, very posh British house manager who had worked at Buckingham Palace, who had kept their home in London, who provisioned the home with wine for Amber Heard, who was lighting fires and candles at the end of the night, who overheard some of these fights. And then he ends up in Australia in this gorgeous home being, again, the house manager provisioning things, arranging the cooks. And then there's this horrible bloody fight in the middle of the morning and he's called to the house to find a freaking finger. You can see this man's he, he, he worked at Buckingham Palace and he's searching for a movie star's finger after he had a fight with his wife and took chunks out of the plaster and the marble stairs. You could see how horrified he was by this behavior. It was it was a very interesting testimony to me. Mm, that is interesting. But again, going back to the privacy, it's like he's been dragged into this. There was also, I recall, uh, Paul Bettany, the actor from Wimbledon and a few other things, uh, yep. Da Vinci Code, I think. You know, his texts with Johnny Depp were made public. <laughs> Isn't that Matt? He's in Marvel. Oh, is he? Oh, is he what's, what's he in as Marvel? Say that again. Vision. Well, I talked over you. It doesn't do it when we both speak at the same time. Go now. He's Vision. I don't know what that is. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Um, he's yeah. amazing. But yes, all these text messages came in, and we might still see him testify. And they're they're horrific text messages. But again, if you're sending text messages like that of someone you're not married to yet, maybe don't get married. Well, there is that. But I just don't, I feel bad for him because I'm now thinking, God, what if a friend of mine becomes a Hollywood star and has a huge thing? And I've said, because I send horrible messages all the time, awful messages. Yep, delete your texts. If I can't from their phones. (laughs) (laughs) On Telegram, you can delete for both. I'll I'll get in touch with you afterwards to see if you can represent me when. uh... But it's one of those things to have to to have to explain every text message you've you've sent to your friends out of anger, venting frustration, and seeking support in things that are clearly hyperbolic and and not intended is a very interesting thing. But I think it reminds everyone, particularly in the U.S., anything that you post online and things that you share can be used against you, and and intend that they might. Yeah. Yeah. We've we've got you here for a few more minutes, right? And as a lawyer, it would be it would be uh, remiss of me not to ask you about the big news coming out this morning about abortion um, and the Supreme Court in the U.S. and whether what what are your thoughts on that, and is that going to be reversed? I haven't had a chance to read the opinion yet because I've been covering six plus yeah. hours a day of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. It is a draft opinion, which means a final vote has not been done. We know that draft opinions can change from the Supremes. It may or may not. So once I read it, I will be more than happy to give more of my thoughts. But I have not had a chance to read the reasoning on it to see if this is a draft opinion that might shift. I'm very interested in how it's gotten leaked. That is something that is not something I've ever seen happen in the history of the Supremes. I worry that we've got political gamesmanship playing into how the Supremes decide cases, which is always concerning to me. They're supposed to be neutral. I don't know if that's actually the case anymore, but it will be interesting to see if this actually becomes the final ruling or if things change. So that's kind of where I'm watching it right now. But without having a chance to read it, I can't really comment on the legal standing of it um, because I don't have an opinion yet. It's a a fairly lengthy draft opinion. 
Okay. Where, where, where do you stand on you know, pro-choice, pro-life, or do you not say publicly? Uh, I generally don't talk about politics publicly, but I also think we've come to a point where people need to have the ability to make the medical decisions that are right for them without governmental control. So that's generally where I stand is you should be able to make the medical choices that are right for you. It's pretty crazy times at the, at the moment. It's very interesting times. And it's, and it's, again, there's a lot of bigger context here because it's getting into federalisms and states' rights versus federal rights. And is this the proper positioning of the courts? Is this what the courts should be doing? It raises quite a lot of questions. Or is this what our elected officials are for? Yeah. Wow. Oh, Sean's here. Hello, Sean. Uh, Emily needs to get back to her channel. She's got 25,000 people on the live stream. <laughs> and they're like, where is Emily gone? Where is Emily gone? No, and, and you're, you're, you're an absolute trooper to yeah. fulfill your commitment and, and, and come over here and do this when you've got so I'm, much going on, on on your own channel right now. I'm happy to chat with y'all. And we will have to chat when this case is over a little bit more in depth. Um, because again, when I look at the law, I really try to look at what the law is, what it should be and what it says without necessarily my own personal coming into it. And I yeah. think that all lawyers are capable of that. I think it's very strange uh, to the non-lawyers that are like, wait, what? And I'm like, no, I want to see the foundations. I want to see the legal arguments. And that's what's important to me because um, how I want to vote is not necessarily how someone else should want to vote. So. Yeah, and oh, your channel's yeah. absolutely on fire right now. And I urge the viewers to go over, click yeah. on what Emily is doing, and please subscribe to her channel. She's been so gracious with her time coming over here today when she's so busy. Thank Legend. you so much. I'm happy to be here. Can't wait to talk to you all again. Um, Sean, I was enjoying your, oh, have I banged my mic? I was enjoying your TED Talk last night. It oh, was, thank you. It was lovely. So it was, it was really nice to see. Oh, cheers. So. Thank you very much for that, Emily, and good luck with what you're doing. Thank you so much. Y'all have a good one. Cheers, Emily. Bye bye. bye, -bye. What an amazing, what an amazing woman. She's got twenty five thousand yeah. on her live stream right now. Yeah. And um, yeah, I've just looked at her back catalogue, and she's going through the roof on her coverage of Depp and her. I think she's at thirty forty thousand subs for the month. <laughs> That's ten times as many as I've got in total. Super chats just coming in like bam, 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 bam. Yeah, while she's chatting to us, and it's still happening, sort of on the other stream. <laughs> All right, so a few announcements. Then we've got oh. three minutes left. So if you're going to join us on Patreon at eight ten, we will be having Mark Atwood on at eight ten for thirty minutes. That's how it's going to start, and he's hugely viral right now on his exposure of the NWO. Next thing is we've got the Savile documentary that is timed to come out tomorrow at 6 p.m. But Ash is urging me to do some Amber Heard testimony coverage. <laughs> and to push it and to push it back. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes tomorrow. We're going we're gonna to experiment with some Amber Heard testimony coverage tomorrow and see how it goes. And um, if, you, if you do join us for the Savile documentary anytime this week, it's almost four hours long and it features Kelly Gold, who was a friend of Top of the Pops suicide victim. She was a dancer at Top of the Pops. Mark Williams Thomas, the ex-cop. Christopher Walmer, author. Stephen French, whom Savile tried it on with. Matthew Steeples, author activist. Mark Costa, aka Boris, who's got a book out on Broadmoor and Savile. Christopher Berry D, the biggest true crime author in the world. Um, Jason Farrell, senior political correspondent, Dr. Das, you're familiar, of course, with this channel. And 
Alan Merritt, who is a survivor and an activist. So that's one of the huge announcements. We spent four years making this thing, and it, hopefully it will be out tomorrow. Let's see how it goes, if we can pull off this uh, Amber Heard coverage as well. Please also Congrats, support... mate, on the documentary. Congratulations. Oh, cheers. Cheers. P- please also support Andrew on his platform. Ah. Ah. On the edge, because he's about to bugger off to Cornwall for yeah. a week. I'm going if for you a are I'll still be back for next in, week. If you're in the neighbourhood of... What hotel is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you all once I've been there and come back. And also, I wouldn't say the name of the hotel afterwards because I'd be annoyed that I didn't get a free stay for saying the name of the hotel. So I'm not saying who it is anyway. But uh, yeah, do come check out On The Edge with Andrew Gold. That's audio, Spotify, and all those places as well. Apple Podcasts, but also on YouTube. And it's pretty much this show, isn't it, Sean? Except not quite as good because it doesn't have you on it that, that often anyway. As long as it's got one of the hurry-backed clan, it is all equal. And Andrew Gold is just frozen on the screen. So let's bump him off, because we are about to go anyway over to Patreon. So yeah, link for the Patreon is in the description box below the video. If you want to join us on Patreon, a huge thank you to all the people who are joining us on Patreon, because it supports the production of the content. Oh, yeah, and the final thing is we do have merch now. The merch store went live today, and that link is also in the description box below this video. Again, all this stuff, we reinvest it back into producing content. Every penny goes back into producing content. So, see some of you shortly. Take care out there. Much love and respect. Hello. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us for part two of Atwood Unleashed on Patreon. I know in recent weeks, when I've transferred over, I've had to adjust my microphone. So first up, is my audio okay? Let me know. Ash, are you watching? Come in, over. My audio is okay, great. All right, so we're gonna bring in, without any further ado, our first guest, which is, we're gonna have an at fest, at fest number two, the Atwood clan. Let's bring in Mark Atwood, shall we? Let me find him. Right onto the screen. If you've not checked out Mark's channel, I urge you to do so. He is, him and his guests are the tip of the spear right now on YouTube. Saying a lot of things that we can't say, that I can't say on my channel. Carrying the torch of exposing the NWO scum. (laughs) (laughs) Scum. (laughs) Mr. Atwood, how are you doing today? Hello, Mr. Atwood. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) Much, much, much better now. I can see your smiling face. (laughs) Oh, God. How are you? Yeah, fantastic. Having an absolute blast. We've had a good line of guests so far today. We had Ryan Roberts, who's even more banned than you, on earlier on the YouTube section. He's brilliant. Yeah, isn't he? Yeah, he's amazing. You have some great guests. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, so we're going to be able to talk uh, more openly today. uh... (laughs) Andrew Gold won't like me then. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. We welcome a variety of viewpoints on, on, on the channel. Um, can you put your yes? Can you put your full screen on, please? Ash is saying, "What? What do you mean by that, Ash? Can I put my full screen on? I am on full screen, aren't I? I can see me. I can see you. I think that's fine, isn't it? The way it looks right now. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's 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 commence then, Mark. So I'm hugely delighted 
to be doing a second collaboration with Mark Atwood. If you didn't see Atfest Part 1, it is on his channel on YouTube. I will get that link in there. I urge people to support what Mark's doing and go and subscribe to his channel. He is, him and his activist friends and his guests, I would describe them as the tip of the spear on anti-NWO stuff on YouTube right now because everyone else has been kicked the hell off it and Mark is really taking it to the, the, the border of, of what can be said. And But on this platform today, we can say a lot more and get to the truth of what Mark is all really about. So huge thanks for being on. And, and for people who have not come across your work yet, Matt, it was oddly enough, I was at a yoga class this morning and a woman in the gym came up to me and she said, you're Sean Atwood, aren't you? And I said, yeah. She goes, I, ju I just found out about you through Mark Atwood's channel. <laughs> and then, and then I, I clicked over to your channel. I've been watching you and Andrew Gold. So okay. I, was, I was absolutely delighted with that. It works always, both ways, many ways. Uh, and we, we want to get you as many supporters as possible, Mark. So can you reintroduce yourself to my viewers, please? Hello, Sean's viewers. How are you? Um, my name is Mark of the family Atwood, a sovereign living human being on this realm called Earth. Um, I was born in 1969 in Northamptonshire. I grew up in a council house, so I became an RAF pilot under training. I realized there was something wrong with the military, so I decided to leave before I finished training, and then I became a poet. And from being a poet, I went to Manchester University, sorry, Manchester Polytechnic, Manchester Metropolitan University, did economics for five years, effectively, and nobody ever told me about the fractional reserve banking system. If you've never heard of that, it's the number one tool of our enslavement. Go and read G. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. I've told Sean to read it. He's not read it yet. <laughs> um, and then I was a stand-up comic, not very good one, obviously, and a theatre company owner and a journalist, and I did all that in my 20s, and then I decided that the system was crippling, so I decided to start up in business. Then I had five kids. I've lived in three or four countries, including Morocco and the US. Um, but, sorry, something's beeping. I think it's me. Yeah, are we all right to get rid of that? It sounds like yeah. Pac-Man. Yeah, but in the middle of all of this, uh, I've had this really esoteric life. You know, my first memory was being recruited by demons, um, which is a memory I suppress. I've had out-of-body experiences. I see ghosts. I'm a little bit psychic. I, um, I've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of UFOs over the years. And when I started talking about all this stuff, because I, I started waking up when I left the RAF in 1989. I, let's, let's unpack that a bit, because you said you got into the RAF, and something during that period of time made you see things differently. What was that thing specifically? Well, I, I turned my dad's life support machine off when I was 17. He was 37 and had a brain hemorrhage. That kind of thing would probably be illegal now. Whoa, um, whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down, slow down. Could you just, could you just go over that? Say, say that again slowly because that was a lot to absorb. My dad had a brain hemorrhage when he was 37. I was 17. Oh, my God. Okay. My mum was out of it, and they turned to me and asked me uh, if I'd turn it off, and I, I thought it was the right Holy thing. Holy shit. Oh, my God. The point is that when that, I mean, it took me a long time to get over that, but the point is that it, it, I, I, I saw death for what it was and the pain, and I was training to kill people, and my soul couldn't stand it, and I had to get out. And there were a number of other things. Margaret Thatcher was lying to the British public about things that I knew she was lying about because I was observing things that were different to what I saw on the front page of the headlines. On, on what the were those things? Um, well, I, I think I might still be bound by the official secret sack, so I don't generally 
say what that is because I want to stay out of their way as much as possible in that respect. But it was to do with nuclear weapons and where they were housed. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, two of my friends uh, committed suicide. One of those was covered up, um, which I found very disturbing. And, and, and I met Prince Philip at St. James's Palace and got the Gold Duke of Edinburgh's award off him. And um, just rem- and I was two years too late because my dad had died. I should have got it when I was 17, but I was 19 when I went. I was in my Air Force uniform. And I remember him coming up, holding my hand and, go- and looking at me. And he was only, I'm only five foot. Hey, he was, I mean, most people think he's like six foot, but I just remember him being really short. Maybe I was on a stage, I can't remember, but I held his hand and it was horrible. And I looked him in his eye and his leather face and those eyes I'll never forget. And he looked at me and he said, I see you've joined the, uh, the, uh, and somebody had to whisper in his ear, what that for, sir? And I was like, hang on, you're the boss. You don't even recognize the uniform. Little did I know he'd probably just come up from the dungeons after doing very bad things to small people. But I didn't know that. Did, did, that. His, did his teeth look like this? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Were you there? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've got to laugh about it because it's so horrific. What else are you supposed to do to get through? But um, that's a lot to go through at that age, man. That is a lot to, to, yeah. Hmm. Well, anyway, I mean, this was my dream from seven years old to be a pilot, right? And I and I basically made it. And then I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing it anymore. So I started writing loads of poetry started coming out i'm still a poet now actually and um that's where that's my happy place poetry um but but i was having this esoteric life you know spiritual experiences but when my dad died i became an atheist i stood outside the chapel of rest and with a bottle of whiskey in my pocket shouting i hate you at god and before that i'd had a very strong relationship personal relationship with my creator as a kid but I spent 25 years basically being an atheist. I'm not an atheist anymore because of all the strange things that have happened to me in the last 10 years at least. But as far as the awakening started, I mean, I, you know, I, I knew something was wrong back in the late 80s and, and every, my whole system blew up. And, and, and as it started landing back down, all the pieces came back into different places. And I was, you know, I, was, I did a TV comedy show about fake news in 1996. I did um, I did an anti-war comedy stand-up act for quite a few years, um, and I was writing I was writing um, plays that were um, existential. I was kind of into Beckett and Pinter and all that. But then I went into business because I couldn't. I was totally skid and um, told you I wasn't very good at comedy, and realised that you know business would be maybe a way to have more freedom and choice in this strange world and i uh, did that quite successfully for a number of years especially with the internet and i you know I'd, i've taught courses on the internet and stuff like that but i don't want to bore everybody with my biography because really the most important thing is these spiritual experiences that started happening and i got dragged through the shit by god basically and taken to the brink of suicide and um you know and i did loads of things like i've done ayahuasca and peyote ceremonies and all those sound bath healings and reiki i'm, a, I'm a, i learned reiki and, and I've done all these things trying to explore this stuff but when this thing happened covid we can say we can say words like covid amazing on here um i knew it was coming the reason i knew it was coming is, is because 
a Canadian comedian in 1999 had given me a copy of something called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which I know some people will be watching this and go, it's just anti-Semitic, blah, blah, blah. It's actually not. And what you need to do, if you think that, is go and look up Janet Osbard's series on bit shoots called The Fall of the Cabal and look for the episode that she's done about the Protocols of the Elders of Zion because it's superbly put together. It's the best documentary for red-pilling anybody, that whole series. I think she's up to part 30 or something now. Um, and then uh, one of my friends died in 9-11 and uh, his brother, uh, Matthew, that was Jeff Campbell, we all went to school together and Jeff was allegedly in that building that day and uh, Matt, his brother, realised something wasn't right. And I watched me and Matt, well, I saw, I stood over Matt's shoulders as he, I mean, he's been on Infowars, he's, he's, he's burnt the 9-11 commission outside the US embassy, he's done all sorts of amazing things, he's a very brave man. <clears throat> excuse me, considering how many families who didn't believe the narrative or take the money um, got wiped out. Wow. So Mind-blowing. And there's and tons of other stuff that I can't talk about that I will put in a book one day. But basically, God was hammering me like this. And when COVID started, I felt it. I mean, I literally felt it coming. I knew it was coming. Didn't know exactly what it was going to be. I knew they wanted to kill us with a virus. Um known that for a long time. I knew about the New World Order. I've read all of David Icke's books. I've, I've done hundreds of thousands of hours of research as well over the last 20 years. And then I got a very, you know, and I'd been talking about this stuff on Facebook for a number of years and lost a lot of friends. I'd also been kicked out of a lot of parties because I could, all this stuff was gushing out of me 10 years ago. And, um, and then basically I got this massive compulsion to start a YouTube channel and start talking about it. And then making poems and then and then finding people that uh, know more than me about stuff, because there's so many amazing aspects to this. I think we're very privileged to actually be here right now. I believe this is the great awakening that we're in the middle of. I believe I know that there's an amazing time coming and a lot of people find that difficult to see. And I do believe this is God's plan. Right. We've got 15 minutes left. So let's get into the <laughs> hardcore issues then. So I've written a book, Who Killed Epstein, Prince Andrew or Bill Clinton. What are your thoughts on Epstein? I don't think he's dead. And I think Epstein's just one of many. He's like Savile. Um, I think people like Richard Branson are in the same frame. I think that most of the billionaires that we've seen in the world were all created. Uh, we've been watching a movie for our entire lives. We've been living in a false matrix. Everything is false. Everything is weaponized against us. This is a farm. This is a human farm. And, and it's literally demons uh, and interdimensional beings. They are real. And they feed off the energy of fear, which is loose, which you probably know about. But they also feed off the blood of a billion children in the last 70 years at least. And that's what drives me because I don't... I refuse to live in their new world order i refuse to be there and i realized about a year and a half ago if the bad guys were actually in control we'd all be dead anyway because they you know the plan was clinton to become they had a 16-year plan clinton's was supposed to win in 2016 and she was supposed to take us into nuclear war most of us would be wiped out by now so that's the optimistic i'm an i'm an apocalyptic i think i told you this before <laughs> and i think we are in the apocalypse which just means the great unveiling it doesn't mean the end of the world. It means the beginning of the next one. So is, is Biden just the stuffed corpse puppet face of the same Clinton apocalypse agenda? No, I don't think so. I think if you, 
if it, you know if anybody believes that's the real joe biden you need to go and get your eyes tested it, it's obviously not the real joe biden i think he was taken out a long time ago and i think if anybody's seen the video of the envelopes being handed out at papa bush's funeral then you'll know that the the bad guys have actually they're gone and what we're having to i think all of this is going on now to save lives and i think billions of lives have been saved by the way that this has been run because i think this is the greatest military operation and spiritual operation and we're at the end of a spiritual war which has been raging for millions of years and we have interdimensional help whether that's extraterrestrials from other planets or whether it's us from the future i don't know but i do know i've seen ships and um they're real so we had a guy on the other week who was a conspiracy theorist debunker and he incorporated q into that yeah. and i was what i was watching it and listening to it but you know the epstein thing seems to back q up where do you lie with all this well, like most people, look, I was um, a red card carrying socialist for many years because I have a big heart and I believe in equality and I believe in everybody's equal and we should all look after each other. But that is a con because socialism is, is an offshoot of Marxism. Marxism was a satanic poet and he was um, sponsored by the Rothschilds to create Das Kapital, which I had to read at fucking university. Waste of time. Yeah, right. And, um, all of that, we're, we've all been conned, right? So we've all been mind-controlled and conned. MKUltra is a real thing. It, it's worldwide. It's, it's the BBC's MKUltra. Everything's MKUltra, right? And breaking out of that, first thing you've got to do is what, stop watching the TV and stop reading the papers. And I used to work at the Daily Telegraph. I know how they operate. Um, what was the question? Q. Right, so Q and Trump, for me, were big moments because... I believe Trump was just another billionaire idiot, playboy, TV star, whatever. Uh, and, but then I had an epiphany and when I was listening to him on the radio in Morocco in 2015, I think it was. And I had to pull over to the side of the road. And it was a really, I suddenly realized that he was talking in code all the time. And once you understood that, you got a completely different version of him. And then I started to really, really listen to him. And it's been a profound experience to listen to him. And it's not that I'm looking for a savior at all. I believe he's, we're all doing this work because we're multidimensional beings, but most of us don't realize that we're multidimensional and what we're doing outside of this point of attention in 3D. So then Q came along and Q is, I find it funny when people say it's a cult because it's the only cult that asks you to think for yourself. It's, um, it's just too interesting not to read. And if you haven't read Q's posts, go and read them. Uh, do I know what Q is? Not exactly. I believe it's um, it's it's a spiritually connected, multi-dimensional thing uh, that that is connected to the greatest military operation in 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 history of this planet. That's what I think it is. All right, we've got about ten minutes left. Hunter Biden's laptop. Yeah, what about it? Thoughts. I think it's all real. Um, I think I think. The Biden family, a, a massive crime family, the same as the Obamas, the same as the Bushes, the Clintons. They are all the most despicable people on earth, and their, their time has come. Um, and, and Hunter Biden's just, just you know, hopefully it's the key to unraveling. I'm looking forward to these guys going down because if they don't go down, and I'm wrong, we're, we're in deep shit. Yeah, and look at all these dodgy contracts and deals with Ukraine, and now this war in Ukraine, and you're, you, you know you're talking about the possibility of nuclear war. 
So I just had lunch with someone this week, actually, who's just got back from Ukraine and he was working like a medical uh, logistics kind of facility. And the volunteers from the West were coming through his facility. They would go to the front line and they would be dead within 24 hours. So he showed me a video. Uh, the Russians had got this from a GoPro. They got out, the, the guys going to the front line, they got out their vehicle, they started pointing guns at some houses and then a bomb landed and they were dead within one minute, six seconds of being on the front line. So he got in trouble because he started uh, giving people a heads up who were coming in. He was, he was saying basically, you know, call, call your, your family right now and tell them you're, not, you're going to be dead within 24 hours. If you don't believe me, you, you, might, you, you need to call them right now. So he, he got in trouble. And, uh, yeah, but I think that's all I could say on that one. But he said that what the media is reporting in the West is completely incorrect. It's like when America was dropping bombs on the poorest countries of the Middle East, you got a superpower dropping bombs on farmers. The Ukrainians are the farmers and Russia is the superpower. And, you know, they, 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 they're just wiping these people out. Do you think it could spread into nuclear war? Do you think that's that's part of the agenda? Like you said, Hillary had that agenda. I'm an apocalyptimist. Um, I think we're going to be more than fine, actually. I think we, okay. we, are, we are literally watching a script play out and nothing is as, as it seems. So if you get if you get sucked into the narratives of Ukraine's about this, that or the other, or if you get sucked into the narratives of even COVID, I mean, it, you can get so lost. And I, I really believe this is a time of intuition and all of that kind of stuff is 3d thinking and we've got to we, we, we are literally moving out of that and it's a slow process um but it's an amazing process if you if you start going inside if you go within uh if you start meditating yoga um whatever it, more time in nature un, unhooking from the matrix that's what we have to do and we have to learn uh, what it means to be sovereign uh, mentally physically emotionally financially in every way because we have been suckling on the nipple of the state for way too long and we've been we've been mind controlled and it's time for us to wake up and i'm not saying i'm right about everything so don't anybody get pissed off with me with anything i've said because you you take what resonates and you leave what doesn't because everything that's going on at the moment is frequency matching so whenever you say something that people find is true and resonates with them that's what they needed to hear at that moment and you know same with me same with everybody else and that's what we've got to understand and we're the, the layers of the onion are being peeled back for us on an individual basis because what we have to do right now is remember who we really are and who we really are is not who we think we are and the world is not what we think it is at all. So earlier on then you said that there's going to be the fall of the Clinton, Obama, uh, Biden crime families yet with the Epstein case Clinton remained untouchable Prince Andrew, yeah, his reputation's been ruined, but he's, you know, he's not faced any serious consequences of like incarceration, etc. How is it going to come about that these people are going to be held accountable then? Because it, it just seems to me like the Clintons are untouchable. I think they're already dead. Okay. I think they're already gone. I think we're watching lots of actors, CGI, all sorts of stuff. I think it's it's a military sting, and I think they're being used these puppets or whatever you want to call them. Uh, there's even people that believe they're clones. Um, I think they're being used to flush out the minions because this is a, this is a, you know, the Satanists in this world are very, very powerful and have been in charge for a very, very long time. And they are all held. The glue that holds them all together is pedophilia. And um, that is everywhere. 
So we got we've got kicked off YouTube for reporting on it. We had uh, sixty million views on our videos, uh, reporting on all these monsters, and it's like that you know it is prevalent, but these big entities, powerful entities, don't want us to be able to expose these assholes. No, of course they don't, because they're all part of the same club. It's a big club, and you, me, ain't in it. George Carlin said. So, have you been kicked off Facebook, or have you had problems with any of these big platforms yet? Yeah, yeah. My first channel, my first YouTube channel, just got wiped out. Um, so I, I'm careful about what I say on YouTube. I've got a bit shoot and a, and a rumble. Um, my, I've been locked out of Facebook for four months now, which I'm really pleased about because that's like coming off crack. It's brilliant. Um, <laughs> not that I know what coming off crack's like. It's a metaphor. It's a joke. Um, also, I, I've had a PayPal account closed down. I mean, I've had spiritual attacks, demonic attacks, you know, um, AI attacks, technology attacks. My phone got hacked twice. I mean, it's all, it all means I'm doing something right, I think. We've got a few questions come in just for the final few minutes. So, a Nexus has asked Mark, where do you think Epstein is if he is not dead? I've no idea. Probably Gitmo. I don't know. But I, I, I just, anyway, you know, that wasn't, I don't think he's dead. I mean, he's, he's, he's been, his, his knowledge has just been too, it, it depends on your viewpoint. If you believe that the good guys are in control, which I do, then you wouldn't kill him. You'd keep him and you'd bleed him dry for all the information he's got. We've got an Agent Orange question, but I'm not sure what it means. N-D-E-X, new data for L-E, indicates incident reports on U.S. citizens, not arrest reports, simple incidents. Any idea what N-D-E-X, new data for L-E means? No, I'm sorry. All right, so Hang Tight has asked, Mark, do you think a new lockdown will take effect? Uh, well, you know, if they did another one on us, I think that might be the thing that will finally wake everybody up. Um, so it's possible. It's possible. I mean, I th I do believe everything that's going on now. Just look at Biden's gaffes. Um, it, it, it's to wake people up and make re make them realize. I think one of the things Q said that resonated with me was sometimes you have to show people. You can't just tell them, and that makes a huge amount of sense to me. If you if you get that, and and also I know people might be watching this thing. Oh, he's another cult member of whatever, but. Seriously, this is my own journey, and my own journey is that it resonates with me. And I think what we've we've all got superpowers that we didn't realize we have, and one of those is truth. Truth resonates. David Icke wrote it in a book. Um, what was it called? Truth Vibrations, nineteen ninety eight. This time has been prophesized. It's prophesized in the main, you know, the the Hopi, Hopi prophecy of the eagle and the condor coming together. That's now. We're in it right now. The end of the main calendar. We're we're in it now. This is it. This is the most exciting time to be alive. And don't be afraid. Yeah, I think you would do a really good collaboration with David Icke because of your understanding of things esoteric, etc. So I'm going to try and arrange that for you, Mark. Well, I, you know, I've met him twice. I met him in Wembley about seven or eight years ago. And when I shook his hand, I lit up like a Christmas tree. I mean, the guy was vibrating so high. And, and, he, and he said, people... He said, the world needs more people like you, Mark. And I was like, well, that, that, that stayed with me and it gave me the, helped give me the courage to do this because I think, and I'm not saying, look, Billy Big Bollocks, I'm just saying that if you do stand up and you're against the tide of basically everybody, it's really fucking hard. <laughs> you know, and, and you, haven't got fat, you haven't got sheets of paper to prove the studies that prove everything, like COVID is bollocks. I knew COVID was bollocks from day one. I didn't know exactly what it was. 
but I knew it was bollocks. And, and then lots of people, I've met loads of people that know it's bollocks and, and it's brilliant because there's more of us that know it's bollocks. And all I wanted to do was save one life. If I could just save one life or make somebody think, just wait before you have that put in your arm, read the fucking ingredients at least, you know, I just don't get it. Get my it. dad's got my dad's got shingles from taking it. Uh, so Agent Orange has elaborated on the uh, question from earlier. What what do you think, Mark, of law enforcement keeping tabs on U.S. citizens called incident reports? I don't know anything about that. Um, I'm not I'm not a fan of any government agency keeping tabs on any human being. We're all free individuals. They should all fuck off. <laughs> all right my man do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you and support you and stalk you no no more stalkers please. <laughs> um well, look, the is my website that's functioning most of the time i'm on youtube the mark outward show adventures in a cosmic suit uh i'm telegram i'm pretty active on telegram i'll put a link in the chat to that yeah so if if you did something with ike then where would you broadcast that? Would would you try, try and do like a live stream on some platform or do a pre-record? Well, I'd love to do a live stream on something like Rumble. I don't know. I don't know if I'm. I feel a little bit nervous now because I, I feel a bit. Out. <laughs> I, out, he's out of my league. But um, yeah, well, I, yeah. Let, let me let me send him a message because I'm on Rumble too, and perhaps we could uh, tag team him. Well, Rumble's a good place for doing lives. Um, yeah, it doesn't seem to be censoring stuff at the moment, so. Um, I wrote a poem. Please go and watch my poetry, guys. If you're watching this, before you judge me, go and watch the poetry. You can find it on all of it is on the markoutshow.com and Bitchute. There's there's comedy poetry. There's it, it, you know a, the pen is mightier than the sword, and I think I have chronicled all of this time in poetry. Even if you don't like poetry, go and watch it. I think two Atwoods tag teaming David Ike would be poetry, Mark. <laughs> that is poetry. It's music, isn't it? It's isn't music, it? Right? It's... <laughs> <laughs> I would love to tag team David Ike. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, wish, wishing you a great rest of your evening, brother, and congratulations on what you're doing and, you know, everything going so viral for you. We, we will be in touch soon, I am sure. Thank you, Mark. All right. See you soon, Sean. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks, Mr. Atwood. Bye-bye. What a fantastic guy. All right. Now we're going to bring in... Derek Bros is coming on for the first time on Unleashed. Freelance investigative journalist, documentary filmmaker, author, public speaker, exposing corruption for and, and finding solutions for the problems that affect all of humanity, promoting localization and decentralization. And he's got a documentary series, The Pyramid of Power. Let's bring Derek in. Let's find him one second. Thanks for the questions, everybody. Very thoughtful though. Let's see, where is Derek? Yeah, I love that um, Mark is just on YouTube saying the stuff that so many of us can't say. Having the balls to carry the banner of free speech, liberty, anti-NWO. Let's see, has Ash reconfirmed with Derek? Just scrolling through here. He's under DB. All right, that's why. DB, let's bring him in. Derek will be coming onto the screen very shortly. I've found him. 
bear with me we've got Derek until 10 past 9 and then Andrew coming back in for the next guest right with Derek let's have a look what else we're going to be talking about his new book Freedom Cells his current tour and what it entails the documentary series The Pyramid of Power have any of you guys in the chat seen The Pyramid of Power alright he's just accepting and connecting right now just waiting for his connection to come through and here we go hey Derek how's it going well. yeah good to meet you man whereabouts are you um, I'm currently in uh, Houston in Texas right now oh yeah I've been to Texas once it's quite an interesting state yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for coming on could you just tell the viewers a little bit about you just a, a brief introduction first before we get into the the deep stuff Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So uh, my name is Derek Rose. I'm originally from Houston, where I'm at right now. Um, I actually live in Mexico at the moment, but uh, I'm originally from Texas, and I've been here most of my life. For the last 12 years, I've been doing different forms of activism and investigative journalism. Uh, I have produced a number of different documentaries, some about Jeffrey Epstein, about the Finders cult, about 5G. And I uh, spoke to you. I spoke to you yeah. before. Oh, yeah, my yeah, goodness. Well, oh, my goodness. For you. Yeah, yeah and so right. I've done the documentaries and uh, written some books and done some different things. But overall, you know, the, all the work is just going towards trying to educate people about the, you know, using my journalism. I also write articles for uh, The Last American Vagabond with Ryan Christian and uh, written articles for a lot of different independent media websites over the years. And so all the work's just about trying to educate people about what's really going on. And then also at the same time, trying to promote different solutions like freedom cells that we're going to talk about today and different things like that. So, yeah, I've been uh, living in Mexico the last two years, though, and just building freedom cell movement out there as well as in the U.S. And um, as we're going to talk about today, I've spent the last couple of years doing tours of uh, Mexico and the U.S. and trying to just spread these ideas and connect with other people who are, you know, thinking in a similar path and are concerned about the direction that we're headed and are looking for answers. Well, you need to get your ass over to London, Derek, so we can go take you to a <laughs> pub and, and do a full, re full recorded podcast. Yeah, well, yeah, congr congratula congratulations on expanding your exposure of this evil. What exactly are freedom cells? So freedom cells, the way that um, myself and a couple other guys who have been the ones who've been promoting it in the last few years, the way we describe it is peer-to-peer -peer decentralized organizing uh, focused on solutions such as skill sharing, knowledge sharing. Um, this can mean things like uh, prepping or preparation, you know, the idea that coming together in a small group with a small group of people that you trust in your local community. We focus on the number eight. There's some really good research out there about group dynamics and uh, group size that seems to indicate eight being a kind of ideal size number, but ultimately it's not really, it's not any sort of rigid thing. You know, if you can work with six or seven or 10 people, then, you know, that's, that's great. It's all about just coming together with people who are, um, you know, we don't consider it to be another activist group that people just get together to socialize or even to go protest necessarily. It's more specifically to take the most solution-minded, most active people in your community, whatever that means in your area, and come together and say, what are, our, what are the things that we're concerned about? What are the solutions that we want to focus on? Maybe people are concerned about um, like food shortages and, and 
food prices rising. So you decide as a group, let's all eight of us start stocking up some food for the future so that we know that this you know crew of us that we all know that our us and our families are in a position where we're taken care of and we can be that support system for each other uh, maybe you also decide that you want to make sure that um you know you have some way to communicate if uh you know if the power goes out or something like that so you start working on alternative forms of communication or maybe the people in the the group are parents and so they decide they want to focus on things like peaceful parenting or homeschooling or, or things of that nature right ultimately it's going to depend on the people who decide to get involved but it's the the idea of let's find those most activated people and focus on solutions of how we can take care of ourselves for not just because we're preparing for doomsday or something like that but to have that support system that many of us in the western world have kind of lost you know not a lot of people don't know their neighbors anymore don't, don't have any connections to their local community and uh, also at the same time our lives have gotten really comfortable so in some cases we have become dependent or ex 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 expectant of the uh, grocery stores that they're always going to have all the food we need and we should just there's no reason to have you know a couple of days of food or a couple of weeks of food put away in a cellar or something like that because the grocery store is always going to be there and obviously we've seen during covid times and uh you know some of the recent is the Canadian government treated the protesters and the Freedom Convoy seizing people's bank accounts, that there's importance to be forward thinking and to think like, how can we take care of ourselves? So the Freedom Cell idea is building this local group, uh, you know, decentralized in nature where everybody has, you share the idea being that you share the knowledge and the information among the group um, and you work together. And as you're building these groups in cities and towns around the world, the idea being that in the long term, these groups start to connect on and to form a larger network and we believe that in the long term this is going to be a parallel network that will offer people uh, a way to live and thrive outside of the great reset system the technocratic system that these people are trying to build so i've been promoting the idea since 2016 but it wasn't really till march may 2020 about two years ago when COVID happened that a lot of people were finally i think ready many people felt threatened because of all this stuff happening with COVID, lockdown, losing jobs, travel restrictions, et cetera. And so humans were kind of silly. We don't really act until we feel threatened. And so even though people might've known there were problems prior to this time, many people just felt like, oh no, now I'm under threat. I need to find out, you know, what can I do? And I need to find other people in my community. And our website, freedomcells.org, the main kind of feature of it is it a map that allows people, let's say you don't know anybody locally to start a group. You know, some people are very active in a, freedom community in their area they have a lot of people to work with and and to build a freedom so is but some people are in a situation where they don't know anybody yet or maybe they feel like they're in a really small town so on our website people sign up and they put what their interests are and what their skills are etc and they add uh, their location wherever they live not their house but you know their town and you can go on and search member map or cell map and you can search 5 10 15 20 kilometers from your house and see where people have joined near you or if groups have been created near you, you can check out their profile to see if they sound similar or interested, connect with them. And then the goal is to meet in the real world and to leave the website behind. So it's, it's just a way to facilitate real world connections so people can build these groups. And in the last two years, it, it's really just been, we've had so much response from you know the UK to Australia to across really Europe. And now there's 15, 16 groups in Mexico probably hundreds in the US and many more doing it on our website and then some using Telegram to organize, maybe some using other platforms and some who maybe are just taking inspiration and doing it in their own way. But in general, this concept of organizing on a local decentralized kind of fashion and sharing knowledge and seeing how we can build a larger network, this concept seems to be growing. And uh, it's we went from about 1,500 members on the website in 
early 2020 to now like 32,000 people who've joined from around the world and then probably tens of thousands of more who have created freedom cells on telegram who are just kind of doing it on their own platforms and so it's been a really beautiful journey to watch it go from some people interested to it and now people realizing okay maybe we do need to work together maybe we do need to come together and support each other and uh yeah so it's a lot of my work has been focused the last few years on just promoting the concept in different ways and as I said, the last two years has been pretty popular. Good job on coming up with real world solutions then for these things. So since I last spoke to you, what do you think about the way that the Epstein, Maxwell, Prince Andrew case has played out? Yeah, it's been, uh, wow, it's been interesting. Huh? I, uh, I will say that I wasn't surprised after Maxwell's trial to see this incident with one of the... Um, one of the jurors coming forward in the situation where they're saying, okay, this might affect the the ruling, you know, like, okay, well, here it is. Here's a, here's some sort of exit plan put into place. And I, of course, I'm skeptical. Like, I mean, I have friends who were there, as I'm sure, I know you were probably interviewing people who were there at the trial reporting. So um, I believe the trial did happen. I know some people are still like, we don't even know if it happened, like, because they haven't shown video and picture of her. I think it did happen. People were there in the courtroom seeing her. Now, as to whether or not we saw a real trial in the sense of real evidence and real, you know, real questions. Uh, obviously we know that it didn't go deep at all in any way of, as far as looking into co-conspirators and who she was working with for or with and all these kinds of questions. None of that, the intelligence question wasn't even asked or brought up in any kind of form in the trial. So I think that's a huge um, kind of red flag as to the, the, uh, the actual accuracy and accountability associated with that trial. So I don't really have any faith that anything's going to come, old, you know, from it. I mean, I think it's still up in the air as to whether or not she will survive the whole thing, right? I mean, we'll see. We saw that Jean-Luc Brunel um, recently, something happened to him. Uh, so I think that it's, it wouldn't be out of the totally out of the question for something, you know, to go wrong in this process of leading up to either her being retried or, you know, her being sentenced but then not making it to the prison you know so I, I don't know i think it's it's just to me another sign that the whole epstein saga and the that whole network that there hasn't been really there has really hasn't been any accountability other than obviously it's now become a story that many people in the mainstream know i think there's still some people who have no idea who jeffrey epstein is i mean maybe it feels such like a, such a big story in our communities and it did make mainstream news but there's still a lot of people who seem to just kind of miss this whole chapter but then I think what's most disappointing to me is that through all of this, the the fact that so many people, even in the mainstream you know, world, seem to accept or acknowledge that this idea that Epstein killed himself just didn't make any sense to the point that Saturday Night Live did like a whole skit on it. And like, you know, they did different jokes. It just became and that's what really hit me. I was like, wow, it went from like this thing where maybe there's going to be some sort of mass awakening to really understand and, and put this into you know, really understand this whole situation. This guy was associated with the, the Prince of England. This guy was associated with powerful people and all this stuff happened. And oh my God, they're saying he killed himself and the cameras weren't, just to really put that all into understanding. And instead it's just whittled down to some joke on Saturday Night Live while they're doing a skit and they just, you know, Epstein didn't kill himself and everybody laughs and that's kind of it. And I think that sort of, for me, signifies the whole state of things. Like while a lot more information has come to light and people in our circles who are paying attention, I don't see any, and, and some of the women, I think, were able to voice their, uh, you know, their their feelings for maybe the first time in a public venue, and I, and I think all that is important. 
but at the same time, I don't think the people really responsible for everything that has happened, nor anywhere near the entire truth has come to the surface. Do you think that everything like this, that it looks close, that the truth is going to come to the surface, gets co-opted to protect the people like the, the Clinton crime family and people like the Clinton crime family are completely untouchable? Man, I really hate to feel like they, they might be untouchable, but I, I well, I don't want to say but because I, I just, I don't know that that's true, right? They, there's also an argument, some friends of, of mine who are, I think are, it's worth at least an argument worth considering that that idea that these people are untouchable, whatever, you know, whatever they you want to kind of point to um, are untouchable or, you know, completely just all knowing and all powerful itself is a conspiracy designed to make them appear stronger than maybe they really are. Um, I think that's worth considering. And at the same time, you know, when we take in the full reality of from the Epstein situation to the work I've done on the finders and so many other things that we, if we really step back and see just even focusing on, for example, the intelligence community. Um, I've recently been diving down that the crimes of the intelligence community. I focused on five different countries uh, for an episode of the Pyramid of Power documentary series. I spent seven days going through re some research of things that I had I've known about before and I hadn't looked at it in a few years, and then some new things that I discovered that I hadn't read before. And all of it, by the end of that, I really felt almost hopeless. I mean, I don't allow my, I don't really go to to that place too often, but it, I, I felt like I connected with the people in the truth movement, freedom movement, what what you'll say is, uh, you know, people who get hopeless, they feel like everything, there's no solutions, there's anything that we could propose or talk about, they'll say they, you know, they own that, they control that, that person just chill, they, they you know, whatever, and I get that, I, for a moment I felt that after just reading all this history of the different things that the intelligence community has done around the world, from murders and rapes and overthrowing governments and every worst thing you could imagine. And for a moment, it made me feel like, wow, we're really dealing with pure evil. And how, how could we ever overcome this? You know, I kind of had that, that feeling. And, and yeah, it was a connection of, of that. So I don't know if, uh, if that is something that I fully believe in. I don't want to believe that, right, that these people are untouchable. Um, and I definitely don't think, if, even if that is the case, I don't think that means we should allow ourselves to fall into despair and choose to just, you know, become apathetic or, pacified and nothing I mean, i think at the least talking about the in these conversations and sharing information is, is extremely valuable right maybe that's part of the equation is that they're untouchable until a certain amount of people know what's really going on and things you know a, a shift can take place a paradigm can uh shift can take place and maybe that's where we're at right is there's more and more of us asking various questions about people in power but it has to reach a point where the things they're getting away with can no longer happen because too many people are paying attention, right? And I don't know if we're there yet. All right, so one of the viewers, Ray J, has asked me to ask you, can you explain a bit more about the finders? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I will first say that for anybody who hasn't seen my documentary, you can go to theconsciousresistance.com and check out our documentaries tab, and you can see a documentary I put out in 2019, I think is when late uh, fall 2019 called who will find what the finders Eyes." it's about an hour long and the whole transcript with all my sources are there i've also since the release of the documentary released um the finders archive is just what i'm calling it and it's a link to a mega upload file where i uploaded every police document related to the finder story and all of my sources and everything but uh briefly in uh, 1987 in the U.S. and Florida, there was two well-dressed men in suits who were arrested while traveling in a van with uh, four young children, excuse me, maybe six young children who were described as 
dirty, bug bitten, unkempt, you know, looking confused. They didn't recognize things like a toaster oven or, you know, they didn't really even know their names. They seemed confused and things of the sort. So the men get arrested. Um, they start investigating the group and this essentially set off an international investigation in 1987 that at the time did make international mainstream news, including the New York Times, Washington Post, all the big papers in the U.S. and across Europe were reporting on it because it went from men arrested with young children to an inter investigation that started in Florida and, and, and went to Washington, D.C. and Virginia and all around the United States and involved accusations that this group was associated with uh, a cult known as the Finders, and that they were more than likely trafficking these children. There were accusations of, um, you know, various types of cult rituals, you know, what's sometimes labeled as Satanism. Uh, there was also accusations of um, them being connected to the intelligence community, again, crimes of the intelligence community. In this case, the U.S. Uh, Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. And so it makes major news. It, it goes, you know, essentially viral back then. And uh, it, within a week, though, we're, the entire press kind of flipped the switch and all of a sudden they said it was a big misunderstanding, big mistake. There was nothing to see here. These are just some eccentric old hippies. And that's, you know, that's all there is to it. The children were, they, they said the children were returned to their mothers and everything is fine. And that's it. And after that, only one, one or two people, this man named Ramon Martinez, who was a U.S. customs agent who was involved in the uh, investigation in 1987. Basically, whenever the men were arrested in Florida, they got a call from cops in D.C., the Washington Metro Police outside, of, you know, near the White House. And actually, the Finders Warehouse was with I, within a block and a half of where Comet Ping Pong is at for anybody who you know finds that connection interesting. Um, and. They, the D.C. police called the Florida police and said, hey, we think this might be related to this group we're investigating called the Finders Cult. They asked them some questions, and they used that as um, probable cause to get a warrant to go raid the Finders properties. And the Finders had a, a farm up in Virginia out in the countryside, and they had two warehouses and like an apartment uh, building in the D.C. area. And all, all these properties were raided by the Washington Metro Police and the U.S. Customs Service, including Ramon Martinez, this officer. And so... He was one of the, the few people, there was a couple others that, um, a couple died under mysterious circumstances, that was speaking out and saying when they raided the finder's property in D.C., he saw pictures of naked kids, he saw instructions on buying kids from China, and again, this is 1987, and they appeared to have early versions of, um, I can't remember the name of the computer they had, but they had, you know, some pretty high-tech gear for the time, and they also had some early version they were using some early version of email and it seemed kind of like cable to internet because he, he described like when they arrived there they had they had uh and this is all in the police documents this is not just the word of some man this is documented not just by him but multiple people that they had instructions for the members to how to get out of the warehouse and avoid the police because they apparently were sending out messages like hey you know two people have been arrested they're probably coming to the property and uh all kinds of different things that he documented and he he put in his report and he continued to try to find out and follow up with the cops. And this is while they're telling the public, hey, there's nothing to see here. Everything's, you know, been, it was a big misunderstanding. He's continuing to try to say, like, hey, what's, you know, what's going to go on with this? Like, I'm following up because I know what I saw. And he reports that he came back to the Washington Metro Police Department and eventually was told by one of the officers there that the matter had been taken over by the CIA and had become an internal matter. And so... That's the end of the story in 1987, but he continues to try to speak out. He starts going to visit different U.S. Congress people and trying to get the government to investigate, basically. And he got a couple people to listen, 
And eventually, in 1993, the U.S. Department of Justice said they were going to do a new investigation. And basically, within like less than a year, they did their investigation and said, well, nothing to see here. And they, they kind of committed to the idea that it was all a big misunderstanding. They did interview Ron Martinez and some other people, but ultimately they, they said, yeah, there's nothing to see here. So it was largely forgotten. But then I started investigating in 2018. And I actually was able to talk to Ramon Martinez and he wouldn't agree to do an interview. He's actually seems to be kind of afraid or feels like he told me he has no faith that anybody will ever, ever be held accountable for what he knows happened um, and that he's tried to speak out before and nothing's happened and stuff. So, people, you know, I, I basically just tell the story in the documentary. We go very deep and I actually did sit down two times now with uh, this man named uh, Robert Terrell, who was the one of the founding members of the Finders Cult. He was the right-hand man of the Finders uh, founder member. The, the Finders founder is a man by the name of uh, uh, Marion Petty, who we could go on about that uh, if you want to hear more, but basically he's a guy connected to Air Force intelligence and has this whole shady connection, and the Finders themselves from the beginning, from the root, have intelligence connections. And this man, Robert Terrell, uh, in his own words, said he shared a toothbrush with with the founder of the Finders, and I got to connect, uh, connect with him in Florida and sit down with him and directly ask him about these accusations about child trafficking, about the intelligence connections, and about, uh, of course, the uh, satanic accusations. Um, and I, and that's featured in my documentary. And then just a couple months ago, I went back to interview him, and he was angry with me. He did not like my documentary, and uh, he still stands by his story. But as I told him, the police documents clearly say there were signs of sexual abuse to a couple of the kids. And there's just, despite what he's telling me, there's some things that don't line up according to what is in the documents and you know so that's essentially what the finder is about what were the satanic allegations so you know when it comes to these accusations i i tend to to share with people that i feel like when it comes to like most um credible to least credible that i would put the satanic accusations in this particular case in the least credible department because there's a hundred percent absolutely something going on with trafficking children, 100% connections to intelligence communities. Those I can prove and document. In fact, the only things that I saw in the, and again, like there could be more that's hidden. There's, I don't think we got the full story of whatever's going on, right? So this could have been a case that we just didn't get enough information. But one of the claims of satanic activity associated with the finders comes from a police document where somebody had called in because they had I also found in later documents they had been investigating them since at least 1992 because people had reported kids being missing near this warehouse and stuff like that or seeing kids walking around late at night near their place and all kinds of weird stuff. But so somebody had reported that they saw a circle of stones outside of their warehouse. So like there's a trail like apparently where their warehouse was at that goes out into a park in the D.C. area. And I guess if you follow it, it ended up like a circle of stones. Um, it, you know, Circle of Stones could have been a fire. It could have been, you know, there's a million things that could have been. It wasn't necessarily to me at least strong enough evidence to say that's satanic. Could have been something, could have been some ritual out there, something happening. The other thing was that they had, uh, among the pictures that were found, there's pictures of the kids with, um, and this is one I thought, like, okay, it's something. I don't know if I would say it's satanic, but it's something that, I don't know, I don't think they can fully explain it. There's a picture of the adults wearing essentially what looks like white robes. Uh, they said it was, it looked like in their hoods. They're like, you know, hoods and white things covering them. And uh, the kids are there and they're like holding a, a dead goat. They had just had its throat cut. And they said they were, they, the way they tried to describe themselves is that they're sort of like the early version of homeschoolers and unschooling families now. That they were teaching the kids where the meat comes from. And so they wanted them to see this is what it's like to slaughter a goat. 
but they took a picture and they said, oh, the, the white robes, they're like, oh, those aren't robes. Those were just um, like uh, sheets or something to cover up the blood. But it definitely looks like they're wearing robes type Equipment like clothes, and the kids are standing there and they're holding the skeleton. That's been another one that has been kind of interpreted by some people as being something more than what they're claiming it. Um, I think that's up to people to tell, but yeah, definitely, like I said, there's a hundred percent we could talk about the CIA connections, the um, foreign counterintelligence agency as well, Air Force intelligence. Like a hundred percent, we have documents where there's even one that one of the one of the agents who this is the name's been redacted and most of this has been has been redacted but there have been some documents that were leaked um they where they clearly say that so and so you know it's redacted so and so says the finders were a cia operation that had gone rogue like that's in their own words right of course this is never acknowledged really publicly and what was interesting sean is that like i put out the documentary i think february 19th sometime no for maybe it was late Late, late 2018 or late 2019, either way, about six, seven months later, the FBI on their website, the fault, where they just, just their digital home for all their um, declassified documents that the public can look at, their Twitter account just started tweeting out finders documents. They, they put it like the finders file one of one, and then it was 350 pages of finders documents, some which we had never seen before and some which were, you know, okay, we had seen and they were even kind of some were more redacted than copies we had seen and some were less redacted. So that was interesting. I did a video a couple of years ago, just deep dive going through that. And then a couple months later they did finders number two and that was like 50 more pages. And then they did one more. And so they've done three. And it was just weird that it happened after my documentary came out. There's a couple other researchers, including myself, who've been really going down this rabbit hole and trying to follow up with different people who potentially could have spoken out. And uh, there definitely were other cops trying to speak out. One of them I believe is still alive, but I haven't been able to, find him and I found him, but he, I haven't been able to get him to, uh, you know, communicate or talk about it. And I think those who are still around maybe feel like safer by just going on with their lives because, uh, you know, maybe that's just the safer play, but it's just one of these cases that not so many people know about, but once you dig into it, there's just an abundance of evidence that it, it really is kind of mind numbing and just uh, infuriating, honestly. Absolutely. And my mind is numbed and I'm infuriated. So where can people find these documentaries you've done, Derek, including The Pyramid of Power? So all my documentaries can be found at theconsciousresistance.com slash, uh, I think it's just slash documentary. But if you just go to the webpage, we made it, we kind of relaunched our website recently to make my 12 years worth of content a little bit more easy to navigate. So we've got a documentaries tab. And then for The Pyramid of Power, you can, it has its own website as well. It's on that website, but thepyramidofpower.net. And that one is a 17-part documentary series that I'm really trying to keep in the five, 25 to 30-minute length time for the Netflix bingeable generation to just give them, here's the cold hard facts, no speculation. Every episode ends with solutions, suggest, suggested solutions, and suggested further reading for other books and documentaries that they can go deeper. And so we've released two seasons. We're releasing four episodes at a time in different seasons. And actually this Friday is going to be the release, the beginning of uh, season three. And this season we're doing the prison industrial complex, the foundations, the banking cartel, and the crimes of the intelligence community. And uh, yeah, that's at the pyramidofpower.net. Wow, mind-blowing, Derek. I could speak to you for hours, and I do hope you do end up uh, coming to London so we can sit down properly. I would love that, man. All right, thank I urge you. everybody urge everybody to support your work and click on your link. Huge thank you, Derek. Enjoy the rest of your day in Texas. Thank you. Cheers, bye-bye. That was phenomenal, wasn't it? The amount of detail 
on the finders and so much more we could talk to Derek about so we are that's the end of the third hour we've got a fourth hour <laughs> Ash loves long shows let us bring in Andrew Gold let's find out where he, where's he hiding out where is he hiding out let's see there he is bringing Andrew Gold in now and we're going to bring in the next guest, who is Suzanne Buchanan, who wrote The Curse of the Turtle, The True Story of Thailand's Backpacker Murders. And as I had a fascination with the serpent, this is going to be really interesting. Let us mm. find Suzanne, and then we'll toggle off. And see you in an hour. I'll come back in an hour. So um, tell me a bit about your background and how you came across the idea and what was happening and everything for the Curse of the Turtle. Basically, I was living in Thailand. Um, and like a lot of people that went to Thailand, I originally went there as a scuba dive instructor. Um, and I was teaching diving and living on Koh Tao, which is a beautiful island with beautiful oceans and beautiful beaches. And everything was absolutely wonderful and marvelous um, until... One day, one of the main dive school owners was assassinated in broad daylight. Um, which was a bit like, uh oh, what's going on here then? Um, didn't pay too much attention to it, not entirely sure why. But a few years later, I moved to the uh, bigger island of Koh Samui. So in the Gulf of Thailand, you've got Koh Tao, um, and then you've got Koh Pang Yang, which is the home of the full moon parties. And then you've got Koh Samui, and then you've got the mainland. So um, I moved over to um, Koh Samui, and after about nine years of diving i was getting a little bit tired of um the same dive sites talking about the same things to tourists every day you know how long you've been here what do you miss from home etc cetera, etc cetera. friend of mine had a local magazine and he'd lost his writer and he asked me if i'd do a couple of restaurant reviews and i'm like absolutely why not free food sounds great don't know if i can write or not but uh started writing for that magazine in a nutshell got invited to write for a couple of other newspapers um that were written but they were only um bi-weekly and then uh, everyone was screaming for a daily paper on the island because there wasn't one um so in 2013 i created an online newspaper called the samui times and started covering local events charity events the regatta and then slowly sort of got into uh things like you know crime um and the odd murder here and there and yeah it all got a little bit more of a carb so i tried to keep a healthy balance of what was going on on the islands and you know covering the darker side of thailand and then bosh in 2014 in september i get a phone call to say there's two backpackers or there's two bodies been found on sairi beach on kotao and i was like okay well who are they then um oh turned out it was two british backpackers um hannah witheridge and david miller 23 and 24 they'd met on holiday and they've been brutally murdered on a beach owned by local influential Thai people so I was like wow wasn't didn't see that one coming wow yeah wow indeed so this scuba person died first was do you think that's related to all of this uh, I think that Kotao has a, a very interesting history um I mean originally um you know just some local fishermen took over the island and, and their descendants um carried on you know fishing and coconut farming on the island and Basically, you know, the people on Koh Tao are known as the Koh Tao Mafia. There's five main families. 
they're not mafia like Sicilian mafia. They're not running around with, you know, um, sawn off shotguns and violin cases by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, they're, they're more tribal. They run the islands and they were there way before any administrative bodies, before there were any police, before anybody was paying any attention. So these five families who run this island very much feel like they're in control. Um, and they're the go-to people. And uh, there's always disputes between these five families and the owner of the largest dive school, Mr. Ban, when he was assassinated, it was over a gambling debt, apparently. Bloody hell. Is it all a bit... I, guess, I know you're saying it's different to the mafia in Italy or whatever, but I've never been out to the Far East. I mean, Thailand, I've never been to. Is it? Does it get all a bit, uh, shall we say, sort of off the off the grid kind of thing? Definitely. Kota is a very remote place. It's, it's a bit of an outpost. It's only accessible by boat. Um, when I was there, you know, in, in, in uh, 2000, it was only accessible by speedboat. It was, you know, really incredible place. But what happens on Kota stays on Kota and they really had very little contact with the mainland or the outside world. There was no social media. So they're just kind of running it the way they want to run it. And as long as you keep your head down and, you know, don't make waves, you're fine. But, you know, there was always disputes. There was always justice Thai style. And, you know, on the islands, um, it's dealt out by the powerful families rather than the police or any administrative bodies. So it's a bit of a, yeah, it's the Wild West, let's face it. It's the Wild West. And what is it like then as a journalist? Are, are you fearful of, of outing people or getting, you know, getting in trouble yourself? It was made very clear to me very quickly when I started the Smoothie Times. There were things I could cover and there's things I couldn't. Um, there's a lot of jet ski scams going on all over Thailand, but mainly in the south where you know, unscrupulous jet ski operators will tell you that you've damaged their jet ski when actually you haven't and try and charge an amount of money to fix the jet ski that you haven't damaged. Um, and you go to the police and they're very much on the side of the, the scammers because they're Thai. Um, the, the, the Thai police aren't paid a great deal. So they're known to take tea money. They're known to take bribes. Um, they have to really in order to, you know, pay their kids education, etc. Um, so it's a bit self-perpetuating. But I, it was made very clear to me very quickly. If I ran a story about a family that they weren't happy about me running a story, I'd get a phone call saying, get that out of your paper now. And you did. did. I did. <laughs> I did, yeah. I would too, to be honest. It's not worth you ending up on that beach, is it? No, not really. But obviously when Hannah and, uh, and David were murdered, I mean, it was such a massive international story. Um, you know, how could I not report on it? And, you know, it was difficult because all of a sudden my news publication that wasn't that wild, widely known. I mean, we were getting about a hundred thousand visitors a month from over a hundred countries, but it was small scale. Next thing I know, I'm getting phone calls from the BBC, from the Telegraph, from the Daily Mail, from ITV, from Fox News, you know, journalists all over the world hungering for information because I was the only newspaper on the island. So all of a sudden I was with massive international press. That I had no idea what to do with and at the same time, keep myself safe. Oh, I'm looking at photos now of, of David and Hannah. Um, I'm interested because I got a couple of friends uh, called David and Hannah, but they broke up. But it's obviously not not the same uh, ones. But uh, yeah, so I, I mean, like, uh, eventually these two people were arrested. Uh, I'll let you say their names so that I don't say them uh, wrong. Well, initially, I mean, obviously, pretty quickly. I mean, there was only a couple of police on Kotao. Um, and when news reached Bangkok that a couple of British backpackers had been murdered, and horribly so, especially in the case of Hannah, the Bangkok police came down and a policeman called Panya Maiman was put in charge of the case. And initially he was looking at one of the powerful families. Um, he said there was some video footage of the powerful families. He um, knew who they were. 
he was going to arrest them. Um, he interestingly said no scapegoats are going to be used in this case, and that was at a press conference. I'm not sure why. Um, the military junta at the time, he's now the uh, democratically elected prime minister, said no Thai national could have done this. But uh, one member of the influential family was actually taken in for questioning. And we couldn't believe it. You know, we're like, wow, there's a policeman out there who's actually brave enough to arrest one of the, you know, co yeah. mafia. So, uh, but then he was very quickly taken off the case and, and was replaced with a different policeman um, who was now in charge of the investigation. And they just started targeting the Burmese community. And, uh, you know, the Thais and the Burmese have got a very checkered history. They don't get on. Um, the Burmese are very much used on the islands for their labor. They're the, you know, the, the, the cogs of the island. They're exploited. They're given very low pay. And a lot of them are brokered there. And they're not even there legally. They just pay the police to be allowed to work and operate on the island. So, um, yeah, I, and everyone was saying, oh, they, like, they're just going to scapegoat a couple of Burmese because that's going to protect their reputation for tourism. Mm, golly. Okay, and and for that reason, so was was it while Fio and Zhao Lin who were arrested? Yeah, Wei Pio and Zhao Lin were um, arrested. Uh, well, they weren't arrested initially. They were taken in for questioning because they were on the beach that night. They never denied they were on the beach that night. They were playing guitar after work. They both worked as waiters. Um, and, yeah, they were taken in for questioning. And the next thing, they confessed to these horrific, you know, horrific rape, rape murder and, and another murder. And... Uh, that was it. They were taken off to the prison on the island of Koh Samui where I was living. And I was like, come on, you know, what's going on here? So I went down to the prison to see them. They'd had no legal representation during three days of interrogation. They told me that they um, confessed because they'd been tortured for days on end. And as soon as they got legal representation, they recanted their confessions and said, look, we have nothing to do with it. Wow. Oh, my word. And then, so what happened to them? Did they have to stay in prison? Yeah, well, they stayed in prison. Uh, we got legally got a pro bono team of lawyers for them. Um, they had no previous criminal history. Um, they had no motive. They had no uh, real reason to have hung around on the island for two and a half, three weeks after the murders took place. I couldn't believe anyone would be dumb enough to stick around if if they'd made that kind of a mess on a mafia-owned beach. Um, and eventually, um, the prosecutor took the case. It went to trial. We couldn't believe it because there was no witnesses there was no cctv none of the cameras were working that night um and we just couldn't believe it and the whole trial was a complete farce um their dna was not on the murder weapon which was a garden hoe which they must have used with immense force their dna wasn't on that murder weapon um no, no witnesses no evidence but the uh, they said that they found um dna evidence inside hannah one of the victims there was a hundred percent match to these boys, which scientifically is completely impossible because in a mixed sample of DNA, you know, if I mix your DNA and your your companion's DNA and my DNA, right. that's that, that's not going to be a hundred percent match to anybody, right? Because it's three lots of DNA. Um, the right. DNA from Ireland was taken to Bangkok uh, in a beer box. Um, the laboratory that tested the DNA was not accredited to test the DNA. Um, and a DNA expert, Jane Torpin from Australia, actually flew into Koh Samui um, to uh, give evidence uh, in the defense of the boys, saying that there was, you know, uh, the DNA was used up. There was only amplified samples available for the defense to retest. The DNA was presented on a piece of paper that had handwritten alterations to it. Some of it had been scrubbed out. There was no official stamp on it. There was no chain of custody. And miraculously, she was never called to testify. Oh, my word. 
Okay, so then what? So what happened next? Were these guys locked up then? They were sentenced to death. Did they die? <laughs> no, they didn't die. They uh, they were sentenced to death, and in Thailand, you have the right to two appeals. So um, they have the first appeal with the same bunch of judges. So obviously, they lost that one. Uh, yeah. A couple of years later, it went to the Supreme Court in Bangkok. They lost that one. Um, and then 18 months ago, um, the king very kindly um, gave them uh, well, he reduced their sentence from um, death to life in prison. So now they're spending the, their lives in jail. And this October, they've spent eight years in Bangkwang Central Prison, which is known as the Bangkok Hilton. The Thais call it the Big Tiger for its ability to eat grown men alive. And there they sit to this day, writing to me um, and pleading for me and my team to do anything we possibly can um, to prove their innocence and get them out. Does that feel like a, a, a lot of weight on your shoulders? It's been going on for nearly eight years. I'm kind of used to that weight on my shoulders now. I mean, I absolutely adore the men. I've, I've spent time with their mothers. Um, I spent time with them when I was in Samui still. I spent um, 18 months going to the jail three times a week to see them. Um, but, I mean, while they were in prison, all these other deaths, all these other mysterious deaths happened on Koh Tao. So it's kind of steadily been evolving. I mean, Hannah and David died in uh, September 2014. Um, in November 2014, a Swiss guy who was a very strong swimmer, he was a, a dive master. He apparently mysteriously disappeared in a, in a snorkeling accident, washed up dead after two other bodies were found. It didn't turn out to be him. Um, nobody ever figured out who the other bodies were. In 2015, on New Year's Day, a French guy was found hung in his bungalow on Kota with his hands tied behind his back. Um, mm. With absolutely, you know, I, I saw that crime scene. There's no way he could have done that. January 2015, British Christina Annesley, 23, mysteriously turns up dead of natural causes in the bungalow owned by the first guy he was taken in for questioning. J January the 6th, 2016, British-born Luke Miller, 26, for, uh, is found dead in the swimming pool after he supposedly dived in to impress some party goers, although no one found until the next morning. Fast forward to 2017, a Russian girl, Valentina, goes missing, never seen again. April 2017, Belgium, Elise de la Magne is found hung in the in the jungle, half eaten by lizards. I mean, it just goes on and on. So it's it's not just Hannah and David. I've just been investigating case after case after case where, you know, all in police, police investigations have led to is a bunch of parents and families who just don't believe any of the rubbish that they're they're being told. And were there that many deaths before David and Hannah's or did that start sort of kickstart it? Before David and Hannah, I mean, British Nick Pearson died on New Year's Day on 2014, just nine months before David and Hannah. He was there with his family. They saw him to bed that night. The next day he's floating in the ocean dead, 50 metres down from his, you know, hotel room that was up on the rocks. They said he slept, walked, possibly had no broken bones. And in 2012, uh, British Ben Harrington um Supposedly fell off his motorbike and broke his neck, but when his body was brought back to the UK, despite all Thai efforts to burn his body before his mother, Pat, who's a nurse, could get hold of him, um, she managed to get him back, and the autopsy in the UK bore no resemblance to the autopsy in Thailand. So, yeah, there's a lot of families out there who are very upset, and we all collaborated on the book and, of course, the Sky documentary, um, Death on the Beach. So what is the consensus here? Is this the mafia just you know, killing and stealing and you know, raping as well. 
I mean, we, obviously, we don't have any absolute proof of anything, but what we do have proof of is that police investigations on that island are absolutely ludicrous. The explanations they give for these deaths make no sense whatsoever. Um, you know, we don't know what's going on on Kota, but we do know that there's just, you know, a, a disproportionate amount of deaths on a tiny island and there's no explanation. And the common denominator is none of the families are happy with the investigations or the cause of death they've been given for their kids. Sounds like mafia to me. Well, <laughs> I have to be careful what I say. I'm in enough trouble as it is. But, um, yeah. you know, it, it certainly seems like, you know, there's cover-ups going on at the very least, um, you know, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I should be careful as well in case they come over and get me. Right, probably not the mafia. They they're quite nice, the Thai <laughs> mafia. Right, they're good. They're fine. Yeah, but you, um, I mean, you left Kotal. Why was that? You got an arrest warrant? Well, I didn't. Yeah, I left. I, well, I left Thailand in two thousand and sixteen because as these deaths were going on, you know, I was digging more and more information out and reporting more and more and becoming more and more unpopular. I mean, Thailand loves shooting the messenger and. You know, the, the eyes of the world were on my newspaper. So every time there was a new death, you know, news groups around the world are picking up information from my publication. And I was basically told, you know, you either shut up and stay or you carry on with your newspaper and you leave. Um, I was told there was a list of names um, and mine was on it and it was getting nearer and nearer the top. So it just got too dangerous. So in 2016, I lost my bottle and, and decided I would leave. Um, the boys had been sentenced to death by then. I was furious came back to the UK and was uh, approached by a woman in, in London who said her daughter had been raped on the island, but she had got off alive. And she had a t-shirt with DNA on it. And I thought, here we go, here's our smoking gun. So I traveled to London to meet, uh, meet the mother. I spoke to the Rape Crisis Center. I diligently investigated the case. I broke the story, which then got into all the other newspapers. And Thailand responded by saying, I've made the story up. The girl hadn't been raped. She just tried to claim insurance. Where does rape insurance come from? Um, and said that I was peddling fake news. Um, I was guilty of computer crimes, inciting national panic and bringing Thailand into disrepute and promptly issued an arrest warrant for me. Bloody hell. What does that feel like to be served with that? Uh, I know. I've never actually seen it. I mean, it, I, and I, was kind of, uh, I was kind of shocked because they said they could, that rape couldn't have happened because it was high tide that night and there was no beach which is rubbish because it wasn't high tide. And even if there was, there'd still be beach. But interestingly, they said it was the World Cup. Um, so it couldn't have happened. I mean, I was just gobsmacked. I mean, um, I knew they wouldn't be able to extradite me because the story was true. It's not illegal in the UK to report on true stories. Um, my server was in Singapore. My company was registered in the Philippines. So I knew any attempt at extradition would be futile. But, you know, you still wake up in a cold sweat at night thinking they found a way around it. And you're now in the same prison that you were in visiting way pure and soil in a few years earlier when they've been fitted up for something. So, yeah, it was a bit scary, but I've kind of got used to it. But it's irritating because I have a big, I have a lovely villa in Thailand that I can never go back to. That is annoying, actually. Can you? Oh, well, in fact, we don't have much time. So just tell me a little bit about, you know, where can people get the book and, and how can they? Yeah, help? they can get the book on Amazon. Um, it's, it's on Amazon. It's called The Curse of the Turtle, The True Story of Thailand's Backpacker Murders. Um, and it's, you know, I think it's worth the read. It's got some really, really good reviews on Amazon. I know a lot mm. of people have read it. A lot of people have contributed to it. It's been, you know, fact-checked diligently. So... Um, yeah, anyone thinking of traveling to Thailand, I'd never tell anyone don't go there, but I would definitely recommend reading the book first. Well, fair enough. And and we've still got a minute. Just tell me a bit about the uh, the Sky TV documentary, isn't there? Yeah, that went out on Sky Crime. It's a three-part documentary. Sadly, um, a lot of it got cut out at the last minute. There was a bit of a hatchet job on it, which is a bit disappointing. 
Um, but oh. certainly episode one and episode two will give you some idea of what's going on. Although, um, you know, I'm not sure what happened to episode three, but uh, at the very last minute, things got taken out. So I don't know who spoke to you, but if someone spoke to Sky, it's nobody insignificant. Bloody hell, it's all kicking off, isn't it? Who knows how deep this whole thing goes? What can uh, listeners, viewers, what can, can they do anything to help? Absolutely. I mean, the best thing you can do is just share. You know, I've got a Facebook page. It's called The Curse of the Turtle. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, you know, read the book, share the news of the book, because the more people know about the story, the more people are reminded. There could be people who were on the islands then that were too afraid to come forward at the time, but they've left and they're not afraid to come forward now. The big deal is somebody out there knows what happened. Somebody out there's got information. Um, and I'm not going to stop while I'm living and breathing trying to find that person. And if I can't prove the boys are innocent, then we need to prove that someone else is guilty. So please contact me. I reply to every message that I get. Um, looking for anyone who's got any information at all. And obviously promoting the book helps me continue to finance the boys. I've been financing them now um, for seven and a half years because they cannot survive in prison without outside funds. So that's really important. Thank you very much for telling us all about that. I had no idea about any of this. It's been fascinating. Do have a, a lovely evening and, and good luck with, with all of this, Suzanne. And please listen to that Leonard Cohen song. I certainly will, and I'm really sorry about the uh, the visuals. <laughs> no, just be sorry you don't know that song. Go and listen to that. I want to know what you I, think. I, I know it's exactly where of the devil because they sing it to me at work. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't I don't remember all the lyrics. I just remember Suzanne. Da, 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 da. <laughs> That's it. He's got a great voice. Um, I can't get rid of you because I don't have control over this. Oh, she's gone. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I, sorry, I didn't cut you off suddenly, but you've been cut off by the gods of the Atwood Unleashed patreon 57 something so we've got uh coming on in a minute we've got american independent journalist michael tracy who is currently covering the ukraine russia conflict which you can keep up to speed with on with or on up to speed keep you can keep up to speed with it isn't it or on it yeah via his substack for those unaware substack is a newsletter i think sean's probably got one and uh you go on the website, you get it free to your email usually. Some of them are paid for. I started one called The Weekly Edge about a month ago. Did three editions of it and then um, didn't do another one because it was just too much to do. And diminishing returns when you're making a podcast. But uh, I've got the audio one on the edge with Andrew Gold. Oh, I've got a good one coming out in a couple of days. Oh, in fact, is that Michael... Yes, Michael, you're right. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? I've gone small. Oh, oh. can you see yeah. me down here? I didn't intentionally blow myself up. I'm not sure people are especially interested in seeing me at that size. No, well, they're enjoying it. I can't change it all because it's all happening beyond my control, I think. So there we go. Unless I click it, what happens if I click this? Well, I don't know. I don't know. For now, it's that I'm sure they'll figure it out in a minute. But tell me a little bit about your background. My background. Well, uh, I've been a journalist now for something like uh, 12 years. Um, the vast bulk of that time has been independent in the sense that I haven't been institutionally tethered to any one uh, media organization, although I've written for pretty much most uh, uh, outlets in the U.S. across the ideological spectrum. 
I don't know if I should say most, but quite a few. Um, and, you know, and I still contribute to uh, the New York Daily News uh, occasionally and other magazines and websites, including some in the UK, like Unheard, where I, I just uh, did a podcast a few weeks ago. Um, but primarily my output is now on uh, Substack, as you mentioned. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, we could get into more of a long-winded account of my uh, personal background, but that's the nutshell version, I guess, of who I am. Hmm. Well, it sounds very interesting. And uh, we, well, let's see how we do for time and everything with regards to a longer-winded version. But uh, at the moment, are you, would you say you're focusing on Ukraine, Russia? Yeah, you know, I am. I think it's an extension of what I have been focusing on for something like six years now. Mm. Um, because in the U.S. there was this sprawling, multidimensional, hard-to-pin-down controversy that we colloquially call Russiagate that really broke out in 2016. And it was a more of a domestically inward focused controversy, right, with respect to Trump and this idea that he had been colluding with Putin and Putin may or may not have actually installed him into the White House. A lot of people believe that in very literal terms, as you may recall. And um, one of the aspects of that that I called attention to right from the outset was that essentially a perverse incentive was being kind of ingrained in the American political psyche, um, which is that, you know, by way of Trump, the idea that in order to demonstrate that he was not in hock to Putin, that he was not somehow collusively under the thumb of the Kremlin, Trump would have to demonstrate uh, that by taking belligerent foreign policy action, essentially against Russia's interests and mm. not following through on the pledge that he made, however, inchoately during the 2016 campaign that he would seek some sort of a detente with Russia, right? Or yeah. um, mend relations. And um, that didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. Uh, U.S.-Russia relations cratered to what even Trump said during his presidency was an all-time low. And that set the stage, really, I would say, for at least in the sense of the American diplomatic angle, why we're now in a hot war-esque situation with Russia, where um, every passing day, there's a new escalation that's undertaken by the U.S., whether it's sending higher grade weaponry, whether it's forging new kinds of intelligence sharing arrangements, such as the U.S. now basically recognizes no distinction between so-called offensive and defensive operations. And they're willing to, along with the U.K., actually, provide weaponry that could be used for attacks within the territory of Russia. Um, so getting inching, getting inching closer and closer to what would be in any kind of in traditional sense, a hot war type scenario. Um, and there's a lot more to say on that, but it really stems from, at least in terms of my interest, the uh, onset of that Russiagate saga, which kind of poisoned the well 
politically in the U.S. Um, to such that Russia became this all-encompassing villain, particularly for liberals, um, and it was it, it stood to reason from 2017 to 2021 that when there was an, another Democratic administration in power, one of the things that they would do is ramp up even further the antagonism toward Russia. And I think that's been borne out. One of the ways it has manifested was in the lead up to this invasion when the U.S. attempts at brokering some kind of diplomatic arrangement that could have potentially averted the war were really shambolic. There was no real diplomatic efforts made at all. Um, except on the most superficial level that pretty much everybody involved knew was not going to resolve any of the grievances that Russia had very plainly said were motivating its actions and would potentially lead to this uh, invasion. And hmm. um, so, yeah, that's uh, I, that's just a sketch of why it is that I'm uh, drawn to this subject. Yeah. I just got back actually from two months in, in Europe, including in Poland, um, where the hub of basically the U.S. proxy war initiative is located in the southeast of the country. I then uh, attempted to go to the NATO summit that was held in, in Belgium. Um, and I also done some reporting on the subject in, uh, in England. So, mm. um, yeah. Interesting. And what is it you think you got wrong about the situation in Ukraine? What I got wrong? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, in the in the run up to the invasion, uh, and I think you might be referring to an article that I wrote. I think. Yeah, I should say that. that. I should. I yeah. should specify that you wrote an article. Yeah, and a, and a video on YouTube as well, isn't there? Yeah, there is. There is a video on YouTube as well. Um, you know, uh, one of the things it's funny about being a media personality online, I guess, who people follow and maybe only pick up snippets of here and there, is that views or positions get imputed to you that you never actually expressed. So a lot of people are absolutely convinced that I said something to the effect of Russia will absolutely never invade Ukraine. It is impossible that Putin will ever invade Ukraine. People are convinced as an article of faith that I ever said that. Hmm. In reality, I said the opposite of that on numerous occasions. I allowed for explicitly the possibility that, yeah, maybe relations between the U.S. and Russia have cratered en enough that they would actually take this dramatic step in part as a retribution sort of gambit against the U.S. or whatever their rationale is exactly. It could be multi-dimensional, uh, right? Um, so a lot of people were just convinced that I was a denialist, right, that I just outright denied that there could ever be any Russian invasion. Of course, I never did that in that article that you mentioned. I, I gave examples of my doing the opposite. But that all being said, I do think that it's fair when people pick up the general drift of what you're saying and conclude that maybe you're saying something that they, they perceive to be consistent with that drift. So when I say drift, what I my drift was prior to the invasion was being skeptical of these really unfounded claims that were sourced to anonymous U.S. intelligence officials, or in some cases laundered through the U.K., that were predicting an invasion, and then they wouldn't produce any supporting material to substantiate those predictions. Um, and um, 
you know, I kind of viewed it at least in a continuum with the torrent of unfounded and ultimately false leaks and prognostications that came out during that Russiagate period with regard to Trump's supposedly collusive relationship with Putin or what kind of bombshells that Robert Mueller or the special counsel would have in store that he would, you know, unleash at the right moment and everybody would be, you know, running around in circles about how amazing his investigative prowess is. Um, there was a, a veritable kind of onslaught of that sort of stuff over the course of 2016 to 2020 under Trump, particularly related to the, the Mueller investigation. So whenever there's some new initiative on, on the part of American intelligence officials uh, mm-hmm. to kind of just prognosticate and say, look, there's going to be an invasion of this or that that date, then, yeah, my instinctive uh, inclination was skepticism. And it might skepticism wasn't just based on that though it was based on what i was hearing directly from ukraine government officials remember Zelensky now who's this international folk hero and is valorized as the second coming of churchill and is going to go down in history as this massively iconic figure supposedly according to at least the popular conception of him uh, prior to the invasion, he was actually borderline scornful of the U.S. for making these predictions about a supposedly imminent invasion. He was actually saying that those predictions huh. were doing greater harm to Ukraine than even the threat at the time of the Russian invasion, right? And other officials that I was speaking to in the government, and I did a, a, another article on this uh, in in February, I believe, um, we're we're saying very similar things, which is that you know there's 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 they're stoking a panic from external sources. That's what they viewed the U.S. as doing, um, mm. and so that yeah it also informed uh, my perspective because my thinking at the time was okay, Zelensky and others in the Ukrainian government they have the most to lose if there actually is an invasion. I mean, they, that, that yeah. could topple their government. They could be dead. Their family could be displaced, whatever. What, why is it that they would be so stubborn and refusing to accept this American narrative as legitimate if they really perceive the threat to be genuine? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that was, that was a, um, uh, something that definitely informed my, my views. And I, I, I guess, you know, contributed to that drift that I mentioned. So, you know, although it is the case that I never technically said there's going to be no invasion, I did think it was probably prudent for me to at least take responsibility for, for why some may have the perception that I was that denier, right? right? And take stock and try to maybe improve just in terms of my uh, public presentation. Because, um, you know, you, although you can't always control how people are going to perceive you, especially if they're doing it in a malicious way, you know, there's always a chance that there are some people who are not malicious and were and did find themselves genuinely maybe misled or um, at least um, had an inaccurate picture of what was going on. And so I wanted to uh, account for that in, in, in some sense and, you know, at least do something that most of the corporate media never do, which is publicly kind of, efface myself like in a way and uh self-impose that kind of transparency and, and accountability so yeah i did do a public mm. uh article on that a video and i i talked about yeah. it in other venues as well so 
Well, speaking of sort of the the mainstream media, do you think that they and or the West in general is accurately reporting what's happening now in Ukraine? Well, the one thing that the so-called West definitely is is that is they're highly uh, ideologically, emotionally, politically, and now financially and militarily invested in one side winning, quote unquote, right? So they're effectively co-combatants with the Ukraine side. They're sending weapons at an enormous rate. Um, the weapons are more and more intense in their caliber as time goes on. And in the case of the U.S., um, Ukraine was already somewhat of a kind of U.S. Uh, protectorate um, even prior to the invasion, right? Because the U.S. had been working to integrate the Ukraine's military command structure into the U.S. command structure. This is one of Putin's complaints, right? That even though Ukraine hadn't ascended to outright NATO membership yet, it had been doing everything short of that in uh, kind of fusing together its operations with the American military and taking on this enhanced partnership status, that they call it, within NATO. So they're already kind of melding together their uh, materials and their uh, interoperability is the term that they use to kind of fuse together their ability to use all the, all the latest weaponry and to kind of situate themselves in the command structure, right? Um, so there, there's, there's already a huge way in which that the so-called West is already kind of by necessity, quote, on the side of one warring party here. And so what they do, and, and this is, you know, leave aside the moral dimension of whether you think it's justified or not to root for Ukraine to win or to, for, to root for Russia to win, right? That's what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. It's a separate discussion. In terms of like what the lay of the land is, that's what it is. And so when you have the so-called West already that kind of intertwined with one of the warring parties, the information that this consequently comes out is going to be inevitably slanted in favor of that warring party, uh, particularly as the U.S. media becomes ever more kind of um, interweaved with the national security state apparatus, which is a trend that had gone on for years, but really accelerated under Trump. And today, you know, half the people that you ever can see on TV or quoted in the, uh, the newspaper, the prominent newspapers on these subjects are people who are basically employed by the weapons contractors uh, who are themselves, you know, work for the Pentagon or work for the CIA or NSA or FBI um, and therefore have a direct stake in the national security apparatus as it exists and the national security apparatus the u.s has done a lot to incorporate ukraine within it since 2014 when there was the change of government that many describe as a coup right mm. um so um so the media given its uh, connections to the national security state apparatus is going to be kind of automatically inclined not to present a quote side that is contrary to those interests. Um, yeah. And so what, how does that work in practice? Well, 
one trend that I've observed since the beginning of this invasion is that media in the U.S. anyway, and, and also in the U.K., um, will simply report what some Ukraine government official asserts, whether it's Zelensky, whether it's one of Zelensky's advisors, whether it's you know the defense minister, or even sometimes uh, members of parliament in Ukraine. Um, they'll just report what they say as a news story when it's never been corroborated, when they've taken huh. zero steps to do any kind of independent verification of those claims. And, um, you know, the most amazing example and amazing in a kind of perverse way that I can recall and that I documented at the time was in the beginning of April, you know, we're just coming out of this period where uh, Russia has partially withdrawn its forces from around the Kiev area and there's uh, seems like there might be an opening for some kind of diplomatic accord between Russia and Ukraine to maybe bring about a ceasefire or at least mitigate the hostilities. And then we wake up one morning, April 3rd, actually, to be exact, and the Ukraine defense ministry, as well as other Ukraine government officials en masse are pumping out this imagery and footage purportedly from this town of Bukha in the Kiev, Kiev area that shows or purports to show, you know, horrendous war crimes against civilians and, and so on and so forth. Then, the you know, any kind of diplomatic resolution or hope for it is blown up um, and the rhetoric escalates even further. Biden calls Putin uh, not just a war criminal, but he's perpetuating genocide. Um, and then at that point, you see the, the grade of the weaponry escalate that the U.S. is sending. And, and what were the origins of that originally on April 3rd? It was f imagery, uh, images and videos pumped out by the actual Ukraine government, by the defense ministry. And mm. yet it just got reported. I was watching MSNBC live at the time, and Ali Velshi, the host, would just play clips of what Zelensky and his advisors had published as though it had been obtained by NBC news journalists or something, or was independently verified at all, which at that time it was not. Um, and so that's a trend that you see repeated over and over again, constantly in the media and where, because of this sort of ingrained mm. bias is not even the right way to put it. This ingrained kind of interconnectivity between them and the Ukrainian the warring Ukrainian party, everything gets filtered through that lens. And to even present a side that could be remotely accused of being pro-Russia is a huge danger to one's reputation, uh, particularly in the media industry where you could be called a Putin shill in two seconds and then maybe be deprived of professional opportunities or be ostracized by your peers and colleagues. And so it just doesn't happen. And so I don't think yeah. we're getting an accurate picture at all. You know, it used to be well understood that there was something yeah. called the fog of war, which is yes. that at a time of war, there's kind of omnidirectional propaganda happening, right? So Ukraine is pumping out propaganda. Russia is pumping out propaganda. The U.S. and the EU are pumping out propaganda all to serve their own respective interests. And therefore, you had to be even more careful, even more scrupulous to ensure that you are not being duped by any one strain of propaganda, you know, given that there was there was such an intensified incentive to propagandize. 
But yeah. that's really gone on, on, out the window because even though journalists, at least in theory, will often claim to be cognizant of that peril, that risk to the, the legitimacy of the information that they're presenting, nonetheless, in the main, they will ju- pretty much just repeat mindlessly without corroboration whatever it is that the ukraine uh, side says and so we the first hint of this that we got relatively recently was from a journalist whose name escapes me now i can look it up who said yeah i mean i've been trying and this is a reliable guy it seems he's written for major publications of the u.s who said we can't even get to the front lines with the ukraine military even if we try to embed with them we can't get reliable casualty statistics we can't talk to uh generals about tactical progress and, and so forth so all you're getting really is the most sanitized talk point, talking point version that the Ukraine government officials on a daily basis will, will put out, send to the journalists, and then that gets presented as sort of just the daily update in the, in the war's status. And I don't think it's reliable in the slightest. My friend just got back my call from Ukraine. And I had lunch with him this week and he, he was all shook up. And I, I could tell that he, you know he wanted to to talk about this experience, but he, he, he'd been accosted by the media and he, he'd refused everything. He's, he's not someone who likes to um, go on camera or anything like that. So so basically he was out in the Middle East, uh, logistics, medical, uh, in war zones, and he went voluntarily went out to Ukraine, did a similar thing. He was at a facility that was logistics, medical. And he said the volunteers that were coming in from the West, like uh, English, Americans, or whatever they were, they were getting sent, they were going filtering through his facility and then they were getting sent to the front line by the Ukrainians and within 24 hours they were dead. And he showed me a video of um, some guys, they've been sent to the front line, they got out of their vehicle, they started pointing guns at a house, one of them had a GoPro on which the Russians retrieved and they lasted one minute, six seconds before they were bombed and died. So he started warning people, uh, he started saying, look, these guys coming through the, his, his facility, he, his, he had a bad conscience. He was like, look, all the guys that are going out there, within 24 hours, they're dead. So you might as well just call your family now if you're insisting on going and telling them goodbye because these guys weren't believing him. And he, he was like, this is, this is what's happening. When I was in the Middle East, it was like America was dropping bombs on farmers with Kalashnikovs. This is the other way around. Russia is dropping bombs on the, the the ukrainians are the equivalent of the farmers here they don't stand a chance and he said everything you're seeing in the media about the ukrainians winning this ukrainians winning that is absolute bs it's 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 totally the other way around and these people are cannon fodder and he, he said he called he, he said he called it the meat grinder within within 24 hours of them of them getting sent to the front line they were dead he had a sim card a, a sim card for his phone so he could keep in contact with people Bam, 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 bam. They were just death after death after death. Well, please put that person in touch with me because I would love to verify. He won't. His he won't. Claim. He won't okay. do anything. Because we only anything. have a very, according to what's been publicly reported, there's only been a handful of confirmed cases. Yeah, and he's, he, 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 he was calling me. He was contacting me with confirmed cases the whole time he's been out there and nothing is getting reported. He said they're completely not reporting western uh, or ukrainian casualties uh, just like you know napoleon fudged his uh, war statistics he says it, it, it's completely propagandized 
Yeah. Well, I mean, again, <laughs> that would be great to get out there because, you know, I'm sorry to do a, put on my journalist hat right now, but, but, but that would definitely fill in a lot of the informational gaps if we could get a broader kind of picture of who has been killed because it, uh, last week there was this American 22 year old who apparently was a prison guard in Tennessee who had been recruited by some unnamed military contracting company and then shipped off to Ukraine and then he winds up dead and then that's the only reason we hear that he was even there um so yeah it's it's strange because then CNN who apparently spoke to his mother didn't even seek out the name of this private military company as they called it as though it's not it shouldn't strike anyone as odd that they're going around recruiting 22 year olds in the south to go off and fight Russia in Ukraine. And uh, then now they're they're dead and their bodies are probably decomposing in the outskirts of Mariupol or something. Um, so yeah, I mean, the if if what you're, you're relaying is correct based on your discussions with this individual, that would be great to know. Um, he, said it's, he said it's all about our support. He said people from the Middle Eastern war conflicts are going out there and they're used to having the air support that they had out there. And then they're getting sent to the front line seeing these decimations or getting decimated themselves and the ones he saw that, that had survived this just people who were vet, veterans of these middle eastern wars just completely traumatized like they'd never seen anything like this before in their lives yeah you know when i was i was in southeast poland in uh, march and just by happenstance one day i i came across an american who also happens to be from New Jersey, like me, which is funny to encounter somebody, you know, <laughs> probably grew up 20 miles from me um, in this far flung place outside of war zone. Uh, but this was a person who was one of these, you know, if you want to call it a mercenary, or that's not the nicest word, perhaps, but that seems to be what they are. Um, although I don't think this person was paid, actually. It just this was an ideological thing for him. You know, it's an American guy in his uh, mid 30s who had gone to fight in what he called the Zelensky battalion that had just been inaugurated after the invasion. And um, this was a couple days after a Russian strike on this facility in Yavariv, which is in far western Ukraine outside Lviv, uh, which is where the U.S. had staged much of its training exercises and training missions since 2014 when they began to gradually ramp up their actual boots on the ground military presence inside ukraine to you know so-called train the army or advise and uh, integrate ukraine into its command structure uh, both on a bilateral basis and within nato and um, so Russia eventually you know a couple weeks into the war strikes this facility and um the following Monday, so this happened on a Saturday, I think, and on the following Monday, uh, John Kirby, who's the spokesperson for the Pentagon, is asked about it at one of his uh, daily press conferences, and he says there's been no, there were no American casualties in the strike because he was asked that question directly. And so then I, uh, by chance, I'm at one of these, you know, processing centers in southeastern Poland, right across the border for displaced persons who had just come out of Ukraine, mostly women and children, et cetera, and I just for whatever reason, come across this American individual. It's like, yeah, no, I was in the Avariv and he got injured in the strike. Um, and he said he nearly died and he would have been dead because he would have been basically had, had his chest punctured by a flying char of 
shard of glass because the windows in his, in his barracks were blown in by the force of the blast. And if he was just slightly differently positioned on his bed, he would have been killed. This is what he said. Right. And then he ended up getting injured because he was, you know, fumbling around and he had a severe sort of laceration on his hands and arms. Um, so not a life threatening injury, but nonetheless, the guy was injured. Right. And so John Kirby just goes before the public and tell on behalf of the Pentagon and says there were no Americans affected by this strike. And I just as one guy doing independent journalism, you know, reader funded, mostly whatever. Uh, I, I just come across evidence that totally contradicts that. And so, yeah, you know, once you experience that kind of thing firsthand, you don't take at face value any of these blanket claims about the um, nature of the American presence there and so on and so forth. You know, I was in London. Uh, I just got back from London yesterday. And uh, the second week or so that I'm there, all of a sudden we're, in, we're, we're going into that bank holiday weekend uh, for Easter. And on Friday night, 10 p.m., the Sunday Times comes out and says, or not the Sunday, just the Times newspaper comes out and says, hey, there are actually boots on the Russian, uh, there are actually British boots on the ground inside Ukraine. Special forces doing so-called training missions outside Kiev. And uh, nobody apparently finds that interesting or, or notable that a NATO member state actually, according to this report, has uh, boots on the ground inside Ukraine. Um, so. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's very wise to be humble as to what we know, what we can know, and how we should think about what we're being told is the dominant kind of uh, reality in a war scenario like this, which, as I mentioned before, is dominated by this fog of war climate that, again, most journalists, at least in principle, claim that they're aware of, but their actions don't betray any kind of fidelity to what it would mean to actually peer, pierce through that fog of war uh, set of circumstances. Also, funnily enough, you know, I say I, I just got back to the U.S. and um, apparently uh, my uh, passport got flagged because you know, for the first time, this is the first time this has ever happened to me. I got waived to have a secondary questioning by the uh, border agents. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting there. Uh, 20 minutes goes by, 40 minutes, 60 minutes, an hour. I'm like, what's happening? Uh, you know, it was sort of late. It was tired. I kind of wanted to go home. And um, and finally, eventually, a, uh, an agent comes out and, and, and waves me in. I'm then brought into another side room to sit down with him in a tiny little kind of interrogation room, right? And um, he says, first of all, I just want to tell you you're not in trouble. It's just like, <laughs> okay, well, that's good to know. I mean, I don't know why I would be in trouble, but then he's basically peppering me with questions about if I had gone to Ukraine and they knew who I was. I mean, they say they do not know I'm a journalist. Um, I think they had maybe looked at my social media or whatever. And, uh, you know, they, they claim they wanted to know if I was transporting any military equipment, which is odd because wouldn't that have been picked up by the scanners and the uh, TSA, you know, when I'm, I'm passing through to board the plane and whatnot. Um, uh, so I said, no, uh, I'm not. And they said, oh yeah, well, you know, we just want to make sure everyone's safe because as you may have heard, there was that 22 uh, year old former Marine who was KIA last week. Um, so he was trying to tie his supposed concern for my safety to that as though because he knew I'm a, he knows I'm a journalist, but then he thinks maybe I'm going to fight in Ukraine. I, I don't know. I, I, I can't give you a firm, definitive 
conclusion about what that encounter signified. Probably nothing that significant, right? But my my impression was it was just to kind of uh, them to let me let me know that they know that they're on to me or they know who I am or that they're they're keeping abreast of me, right? So just a little kind of gentle intimidation type tactic. That would be my best guess. Yeah, the clamping down and all this stuff now. Even uh, YouTube just sent out a, a community guidelines uh, update claiming that if you say anything like what we're talking about right now, you, you, you're a goner. They're going to zap you off the channel. So, yeah, huge thank you for coming on, Michael. We, we're at the end of the show here. Do you want yep. to tell the guests where they can find you and support you? Oh, the viewers, sorry, the viewers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Twitter, mtracy. I put a lot of stuff on there, obviously. Uh, Substack is uh, mtracy.substack.com. Um, those are probably the two best places. And uh, you know, everything else you can kind of get through there. I'll have a word with my friend. Um, I doubt that he'll speak to you, but I'll see if I can get that video off him. The, the guys that got wiped out after, I think it was a minute, six seconds, so you can see for yourself. Yeah, I would be very curious to... Uh, hear that guy's perspective and hopefully maybe corroborate some of what he's claiming because that would sure be interesting yeah all right michael thank you have a great rest of your day cheers all right you too bye 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 all right thank you everybody for tuning into the show atwood unleashed 57 huge thank you to the patreons as always enabling us to produce content and thanks to all your questions viewers suggestions and everything else so tomorrow we are going to be looking into streaming the Amber Heard testimony. And if that takes off, like we hope, we may be moving the Savile documentary to Sunday. We're just going to see if we can pull it off. We're going to do a practice run in the morning with the technology. And uh, if we can pull it off, we can pull it off. Because her testimony is going to go from 10 a.m. Eastern time until 5 p.m. <laughs> 5 p.m. Bloody hell, Ash. That's a long day, isn't it? Yeah, so huge thank you to everyone again. I'm going to go and get some rest. Thanks to Andrew as well. He had to leave in a hurry. Not sure what happened there, but I'll find out. Hope he's okay. And uh, perhaps he's just buggered off to Cornwall. He's, he's had to pack, <laughs> hopefully. All right, cheers, everyone. Good night. Thanks for being with us. Take care out there. Much love.